you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. The corporations have turned this into a kind of model for marketing. Mm -hmm. And that model is the form of commiseration. Is that mad? Yeah. Well, why don't we be mad together? Now, what's, what's the most brilliant thing about network is that it predicted what became the model of all media discourse. Welcome to The Art of Story, where we take a movie, deconstruct it, and we look at story structure, character, and theme. I'm Adam Argo, and today I am joined by one of my favorite guests and good buddies, uh, Adam William Cahill. Did I say that okay? <laughs> uh, a little too guttural. We're not German, but you can say that. Like turning into Dove Rock Eye. Cahill. Cahill will do. Cahill. I'm saying Cahill. Fuck it. I'm an American. <laughs> we say Cahill here. Uh, how you doing, man? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. A little bit, a little bit on the, uh, I'm, I, I, I've been particularly eager to do this episode because um, not everybody will know this, obviously, because they don't air at the same time we're recording, but it's been basically a month since we last did, did one of these. And I've been yeah. kind of really itching to get to, to continue and get stuck in. But we, we, uh, we obviously had the Christmas period and New Year and stuff like that, which I hope was a fantastic time for you. I hope it was a fantastic time for everyone at home. And uh, I'm just glad we're back doing it, man, because this is so much fun. Yeah, man, definitely. Yeah, I missed it. It's, it's. I mean, I'm recording pretty much con consistently, but um, yeah, it was it was an intense uh, holiday season for you in particular. But um, yeah, I yeah, I had a little bit rough. I had a, I had a, a there was a, 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 Ireland is quite cold, obviously, in the winter, and so there's a lot of uh, illness that goes around. And I unfortunately got something that kind of knocked me out for a little over a week, and then I almost had my eye knocked out by my nephew who decided to swing a, a, a Christmas toy. Uh, in the direction of my eyeball, which like like an open eyeball, like literally just it, his aim was perfect. His aim was true, and uh, so I was a pirate for about four days, which was not as not nearly as glamorous as it sounds. But um, yeah. got through that as well, gratefully. And now we're uh, well. It's not adding... like you need your eye to be a filmmaker, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you <laughs> want to remind I've... the audience um, where we where they can check out some of your stuff. Absolutely. Cheers. Yeah. Well, Wild Stag Productions is my company. Wild Stag Media is the um, the handle that I use for all of my uh, online presence. So uh, Facebook, 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 TikTok, Facebook. Twitter, all that good stuff. Facebook. We should make up our own. Our own. Uh, yeah. All the social media machines. Uh, YouTube as well, of course, um, is where you can you can find me wild at Wild Stag Media. And um, yeah, so I have a feature film that's out at the moment that we're really trying to promote and get out there called Follow the Dead. So it's an Irish zombie comedy um, in the process of already um, creating the sequel to that. Um, I have a short film on, so Follow the Dead can be found on 2B TV in the United States. Um, and then I have a short film called Loose Thread, which is available on SoFi TV. And um, yeah, I, I, in uh, the most uh, enjoyable thing that I'm doing at the moment, again, I'm making the sequel to my movie and I'm doing this podcast with this fine gentleman. So I'm, I'm in my element at the moment, mate, in my element. Excellent. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely go check out Follow the Dead. I strongly recommend it. It's hilarious. It's beautiful. It's really well done. I'm, um, I'm repping the merch right now as well. So. <laughs> I love that. I want that sweatshirt so bad. Does it say Follow the Dead on the back? 
It sure does. Absolutely. Oh, I love it. Oh, that's so dope. I love it. Yeah, definitely check it out. Go get some merch. Support this guy. He's so good. He's so talented. Awesome. Thanks for that. And uh, also be sure to check out Story by Numbers. It's uh, my book on story structure. Um, and by the time this podcast is out, you can get the workbook. We now have paperback. I've been getting a lot of requests for paperback because the workbook is designed to be a journal. Uh, so you open it up and it has like the, the question is prompts. And then it has, you know, five, six pages where you can just write and explore. The idea is that it's, that it's a, a development journal and it's a workbook because it has the prompts in there. Um, and because of that, you know, like I'll have people that get, you know, a, a workbook for each project they're working on. They'll have a pilot, they'll have a feature, they'll have, you know, a novel. And, uh, and that's why it's got that little like strip at the front where you can write the, the title of your script and everything. Um, but it's a, it's a way of kind of organizing your ideas, uh, kind of, and it's designed to accompany the story by numbers book. Uh, also story by numbers is available in audiobook as well. Um, and it's, uh, the voice actor that does it is, uh, Bo Thomas, who's an insanely talented guy. He and I are working on this other project that's not public yet. And the guy is amazing. He's, if you hire Bo Thomas, you get an entire cast of characters from around the world. He's a phenomenal talent and I love working with him. So definitely check him out. Um, also it would help me out a great deal if you would go to story by numbers, uh, on Amazon and uh, give it a review. I would love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to hear your feedback. And the more reviews, the more it helps me and the more it helps support uh, the, the work that we're doing here. Great news. I'm here to announce the release of the audiobook version of my novel, The Profit Margin. I've been working with the actor and producer, Bo Thomas, to bring my novel to life. We're also going to be rolling out a Profit Margin podcast series to reach a wider audience. Profit Margin is my baby. It's a sardonic, layered, fast-paced comedy about a television producer who has chosen to produce a reality show that features a prophet who predicts the end of the world. Is it a hustle, is it a scam, or an actual revelation? The truth and the lie are divided by a thin line called the Profit Margin. The book releases on Monday, February 26th. You'll want to get your copy. I'm also including a special promotion with this release. The two videos of mine that are most requested are my deep dive breakdown into Shaun of the Dead and my in-depth analysis of story theory that transcends Joseph Campbell's work called Beyond the Hero's Journey. When you buy the profit margin, email me a screenshot of your proof of purchase and I'll send you an exclusive link to both videos. Now this is a limited time offer, so you'll want to take advantage while it's available. I'm so excited to share the profit margin with you. Get the details at cinematicore.com. Let's dive into Network. Um, this is one of the few movies, most of the time when I'm thinking about movies that we want to discuss on the show, I, I want to make sure that, you know, like the, the, it's, a sh it's a film that the guest is passionate about. Um, Adam, you have incredibly broad taste and uh, your sensibility of, of film very much like speaks to my sensibility. So I mainly want to talk about films that we both care deeply about that we love and that we're emotionally engaged and invested in. Um, I specifically do not cover movies that I dislike. There's not a single movie uh, in the series that I dislike. And the main reason is, is because any movie is a miracle Making a movie is very, very difficult. It's one of the most difficult art forms to achieve, uh, except maybe games or whatever. <laughs> it's not a competition. But even the, the miracle of accomplishing one production is, is phenomenal. 
And I don't want to, uh, I don't want to just spend two hours shitting on a film that I think is a failure. I do feel very strongly that we can learn from, from seeing films that aren't successful or don't quite accomplish what they set out to do. There's a lot to learn from that. But with this podcast, I don't think that that's, this is the venue for that. Mostly because I want to learn from the positive and I want to uh, focus on how we can achieve success from like looking at other great filmmakers. That said, I, you know, that's why all of the criticism that we have in this series is couched in the understanding that it's a success. It's an artistic achievement that they have successfully uh, immersed us in the film. Uh, so, so that kind of plays into like what the values of the art of story is, is I don't want to just shit on movies and the movie that uh, we're covering today network is core to how, why I developed this value when it comes to art. Um, now this is a movie that I chose, uh, Adam, you hadn't seen this before, right? This was your first time watching it. It was on my watch list, but I, I, I had, yeah, I'd never gotten around to it until you decided this is one that you really wanted to do. And I was eager to check it out as well. So yeah. First yeah. Time. So these are, I, you know, I even hate the idea of like ranking movies and stuff, but this is a movie I've easily seen it more than a hundred times. And in preparing for this, I watched it another 10 times through. And I just, <laughs> it, it's a movie that it's strongly inspired uh, one of my novels, uh, the profit margin. And, um, it's it's one of those movies that I'm just it's definitely in my top 10 if it's ever on I have to stop and watch it and then I can't finish I can't walk away from it um but I I think it's just a work of pure genius but on top of that it's speaking to something that is so um ubiquitous in culture and in human nature and I think it's also something that's more relevant now than it ever has been before and that's why I want to have this conversation with, with Adam today. Um, so with network, uh, Adam, do you want to give us kind of a, a, a IMDb breakdown? Absolutely. hundred um, percent. I, I, I was really uh, blown away by this film, um, ch- checking it out for the first time and in looking into the details, like this movie came out in 1976. And so it's obviously like when I say before my time, I only mean that I wasn't born uh, when, when the movie uh, was, was produced. And there's a lot of interesting people involved in the film that I discovered just through, uh, you know, uh, researching it and um, some of the actors I'd never seen in anything before and stuff like that. So this is a really interesting one to kind of dig into for me. I may get some of the name pronunciations wrong. So please correct me, Adam, if I get anything wrong here. Um, okay. So the director, for example, is Sidney Lumet. I believe uh-huh. is the Lumet the pronunciation. Yeah. Okay. Some people say Lumet. So Lumet. Okay. So it depends on whether you're going with the, probably the, the, the French or the English. French. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So Sydney, I'll go with Lumet. Uh, also of uh, Dog Day Afternoon, Murder on the Orient Express and Serpico fame. Um, so obviously the very, uh, very renowned uh, director of some excellent films. Um, the writer is Paddy Chayefsky. Now, Paddy Chayefsky is a three-time Oscar winner for his writing. Um, so he won an Oscar for Network. He also won an Oscar for Marty and the Hospital. And he, he also has a very acclaimed novel uh, called Altered States. Um, so Paddy Chayefsky, obviously, like you're, you're talking like a really high caliber writer here who was, who was in his... Uh, in his element when he when he wrote network because it really is one of those ones that once you've seen it it's hard it's hard not to 
just consider it one of the most uh, pertinent films of all time, yeah. um, no matter what age you're watching it in. But like, you feel like it, watching it in in 2024, you feel like it's it's made for today, even though yeah. I'm sure at the time they were saying this is made for now. Yeah. Um, and so you have a, a really really great cast of Faye Dunaway, who's got top billing, which is interesting, and we're definitely going to be talking about that and yes. why that is. Uh, Faye Dunaway, um, William Holden. Peter Finch, Robert Duvall, and Ned Beatty, to name mm-hmm. a few. Yeah. And, but there is a really, really great cast of, of, of actors in this. Um, the Rotten Tomatoes results are incredibly high. Critics give it 92%. Mm-hmm. Audiences give it 93%. So like wow. across the board, everybody really uh, loving this movie. Now, as you brought up before, Adam, like the way that Rotten Tomatoes works is that's today's statistics. We don't know what... It, like Rotten Tomatoes didn't exist in 1976, presumably. So you're not going to know exactly what the feedback is from that time. What we, what I do know from a little bit of research is that there was definitely mixed feelings within the media yeah. as a result of the things that the film delves into in terms of its themes and its its politics and, and, and stuff like that. So it'd be yeah. interesting to know what the statistics would have been back then. It probably would have been a fair maybe kind of 50-50 split of people in the industry thinking this, because it's satire as well, you know, is it making a mockery of certain elements and, and that kind of thing. So, but, but I, there was definitely a, there was definitely a crowd that of, of detractors and there was definitely a crowd that thought this is the bee's knees. So, yeah. um, but he definitely touched weird. the nerve, like definitely. Touched yeah, the yeah, nerve. yeah. Definitely touched the nerve, no doubt, no doubt about it. Um, and also because it highlights sort of a difference between TV and movies as well. You probably you've got people in TV who probably had more of an issue with it than movies because it's not necessarily speaking to the same genre, right? Necessarily. Um, yeah. I we're going to get... dive into that when we talk about what's this what's this film really about. We'll talk about yeah, like yeah, part of the culture that it was uh, released in. It released in for sure, yeah. absolutely, and and then how how completely relevant and yet different the world is today. But like it's so it still means so much to what's going on right now. Um, the budget was three point eight million US dollars. Wow. Uh, I couldn't get the details in terms of the differential between uh, domestic and worldwide box office. I know that it was twenty three point seven million US dollars. I don't know how much of that is. Uh, I couldn't get the details as to whether it was how much was domestic and how much was worldwide. Yeah. Um, well, for, for 1976, I mean, literally the first ever blockbuster was Jaws the year before. So uh, worldwide distribution was very limited back then. So limited they, they probably time. wouldn't have like very good numbers on, on how it was received. They wouldn't have been tracking it. But, sure. Um, no, that makes sense. But 23 so million, I mean, that's very successful for a $3 million movie. $3 million movie, 20 million on top of that then, you yeah. know, it's like, is pure is profit so like that's obviously outstanding um and the log line is a television network cynically exploits a deranged former anchor's ravings and revelations about the news media for its own profit but finds that his message may be difficult to control that's the imdb log line hmm. okay and again this is really interesting for me because again like we 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 are obviously going to have to have a conversation as is pertinent to the dramatic structure and the themes as to who exactly the protagonist is in this, uh, in this first thing we have to talk about before we talk about structure. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. And and when you're writing a log line, typically you're writing it around the protagonist as well. And and so for here, it, 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 it starts a television network. Yeah. So the network is the protagonist, which is really, it's interesting. I, I, you know, 
Yeah. I have a whole section about IMDb log lines and store by numbers. And <laughs> I make an attempt to try and say like, okay, let's, let's work on those log lines. Cause they're, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the one that makes me the most angry is, is Shaun of the dead where it's just really? like a, a slacker. I think it says something like a slacker who can't get his life together. It suddenly is caught in the, I, you know, I, sh- I shouldn't, quote it poorly but but it basically you can tell the person who wrote the logline didn't like the movie and so they wrote right. the laziest review of it and i'm like okay. the movie is brilliant it's it's and it's so well structured and to give it that kind of logline i think is cheating the the actual production sometimes you're in danger of when you make a comedy of people not taking the themes and the and the drama of the of the film series of the story seriously well you wouldn't want to take uh, a comedy seriously <laughs> <laughs> especially network <laughs> yeah this is the thing about network as well is like what what is what is the genre of the film for me i like it, so it, it's the, the genre it is it, it is it's it's certainly satire but to say that it is a comedy which is which it is billed as is very is, is strange for me it's cer- it definitely has humor but the so comedy, the comedy thing, uh, so sydney lumet he completely protested the idea that it's a satire. He's like, it's not a satire. He, right. he's, it is a comedy, but he's like, what is it satiring? What, what is it? Right. What is it mocking? And I don't <laughs> agree with that. I do think he's, he's clearly mocking and he's Chayaski in particular is clearly mocking uh, network news mm-hmm. and, and specifically news media. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think more than that, it's, it's predictive of where we're at today in our culture. But, yeah, um, obviously his issue is that he like people are, when when he hears satire he thinks they've taken true life subject matters and elevated them in a hyperbolic way to uh, to ha- to achieve a certain effect. But we're all looking at it going, well, no, it's not hyperbole. Like this is this <laughs> most of this stuff is like what you'd imagine le- legitimately is going on in these in these environments. And the you know I I don't yeah. I don't look at it and go, oh no, this is this is this is too much. This is being exaggerated. It doesn't seem exaggerated at all. Knowing what we know about. I think there's kind of this idea of like the satire is like, um, like mad magazine parody where it's Mm -hmm. just like, it's just pointing a finger at something and saying, you know, isn't that funny and stupid when Mm -hmm. this movie is actually honoring the, it's honoring the premise in a really, uh, it deeply emotionally invests in the premise and the world and the characters and yet points out all of their ironic contradictions and exposes their futility in a really brilliant Mm way. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I would definitely say that it is a dramatic comedy or a comedic drama um, (laughs) that that's loaded with irony and that that's, probably the biggest definition and it's a it's a cynical kind of irony but cynical in the sense of like um you know i don't want to go down that rabbit hole quite yet because i want to make sure we get the structure (laughs) we're already talking about themes and and meaning let's let's dive into the structure so we can learn from it as uh writers let's do it cool uh so budget very successful uh very successful um also keep in mind the year before this jaws was the first movie ever to make over a hundred million dollars in the box office so the very next year this comes out and makes 23 million so for its time that is a very successful movie um but what's really interesting is this is a successful movie that other than faye dunaway you know these these 
these are old school movie stars, um, but they're not like the hot, fresh, new, you know, like actors like, you know, Robert Redford or, you know, a lot of, or Jack Nicholson or any of those that, um, that were really dominating the seventies. Um, this is a, this is anyway, I'm, I'm getting into theme again. All right. So story <laughs> structure. Um, again, this is one of my favorite movies and is one of the most complex ones when it comes to story structure. This is something I don't recommend if you're writing your first script or even your second or third, watch this movie, love it. You probably need to watch it a few hundred, well, a, a few dozen times to really absorb like what Chayefsky and Lumet are achieving with this film. I do yeah, think I, I watched it twice in preparation for this podcast, and even I, I feel like I've scratched the surface. You know, yeah, yeah, and even this discussion is just going to be scratching the surface. But I think it's yeah. very important, especially for twenty twenty four. So when it comes to story structure, first of all, we have a movie that is uh, about an hour, almost two hours long, just under two hours. Credits roll it, I think, about like one, you know, one fifty five or one fifty eight. So it's it's classically structured, and they pack a lot into those two hours. It's an extremely ambitious movie, and the first thing we want to do is when we're trying to understand the structure, is we want to look at the dramatic question. And this question forms the spine. This is the central problem that needs to be solved. And this is where network right off the bat becomes extremely complex. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> Adam William Cahill, what is the dramatic question of network? Okay. So in order for us to answer what the dramatic question is, we need to know that, that what the protagonist needs to do in order to achieve their personal goal. Why and do we need to do that? Because they are the point of view character. They are the one that the plot hinges on because we're yep. following, we're, we're trying to decide, do they achieve X? Yep. What is it exactly that they are trying to achieve um, over the course of the film? And, and what answer do we get by the end of it? Um, so we do need a point of view character, at least one. And so um, the dramatic question is always, will the protagonist achieve X? Achieve X. And so we so need you, to The know. protagonist is, is essential to that formula that's why you can't have a plot without a protagonist um and what i what i really like about the discussions we've had over this dramatic question it's such a simple question but it has mm -hmm. it has you, you need to know so much about the characters in order to be able to even answer it so first of all you need to know who the protagonist is you need to, to be very very particular about your verbiage i'm learning where it yeah. comes to achieve will the character achieve achieve assumes that there is an action being undertaken and that specific action needs to be really considered and um, goal-oriented goal and specific. Goal-oriented. Yeah. And then they need to, that there's a verb where they're going to, to try and achieve a specific thing. And that's that X, whether they get X in one fashion or another determines whether the answer to that question is yes or no. It's got to be a yes or no question. Yeah. Uh, it's not open-ended. So we need to start with the protagonist and immediately with this, it's so complex. It's so, it's so, it's not the easiest thing to answer. We, we, different people could, 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 potentially come away from this film and think the protagonist is one of at least three people. So very often when you're seeing clips from this movie, the clips that won um, the, uh, the actor who plays Howard Beale, Peter Finch, the one him is Oscar. These, the, this, the, the, the scenes that are more often referenced from this movie involve him because he gives the, the really intense and interesting and poignant monologues. However, he's certainly not the, the, the actor that gets the most screen time. And he's, he's one 
of three point of view characters in the film because you're really looking at the film either when you go from scene to scene you're either looking at the situation through Howard's interactions or through Max's interactions or through Diana's interactions and it's always one of those that we're following there's actually one you're missing there's one you're missing out on um not Hackett Yep, Hackett. Is it Hackett as well? Yeah. yeah so he, has, he has one scene that he is the protagonist of that scene. Sure. Okay. So we're literally we're we're not we're really not just following one individual. And as I say, although Howard Beale, you know, he uh, Peter Finch won the Oscar, he has some of the most incredibly memorable moments mm-hmm. um, that people like to do their video essays on. Um, yeah. He doesn't have the most screen time by a long shot. And, um, and so to, to, to point the finger at one particular character, by the time I got to the end of the movie, I really felt like Diana was the one that stood out to me the most. And as I said at the start, when we were looking at the billing, she is first billed. And I'm not just saying, I didn't know that when I was kind of tr- trying to analyze the film. Mm-hmm. She is first billed. But that, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that she is the protagonist. And especially because yeah. as you go through the story, she's not the one, like, no, generally your protagonist is the one that you want the audience when the audience is getting emotional when the audience is crossing the threshold you want them to be putting themselves in the shoes of a particular character which is the point of view character you don't put your generally most people are not going to watch network and put themselves in the shoes of diana christensen um and so it makes it difficult for me to to say that she's she is the protagonist however Mm -hmm. she is in she engages in a romantic relationship with max whereby and i think he very much as the as the he's the one that i certainly felt myself engaging with the most emotionally because howard again he's 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 a bit aloof he's a bit mad he's having particular experiences that make him a little bit on the periphery of what's what's going on because it's like what is happening that's a, that's a question in of itself what is happening to howard beale what is happening to him and so and it right off right from the jump answering the question which of these characters is the protagonist i can't i can't tell you specifically this is definitely the one it may be it may be one it may be all of them i i, <laughs> I, I hand back over to you okay that was a fantastic breakdown and i think you're dead on correct um this is so recently we watched uh, prisoners uh the uh, villeneuve movie and we discussed that it was a two-hander, which means sure. that we had two protagonists, and each protagonist had their own inciting in or inciting incident, impetus, catalyst, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then they had their own dramatic question, which was unique to that character, and they each had their own different story structures. Mm-hmm. In the case of Network, we have three protagonists. Um, and I 100% agree with you that Diana is by far the, the engine of this story, mm. um, much more so than Howard Beale. And the reason mm. is Howard Beale is largely the spectacle. Um, but the person who is driving the story, making everything happen is Diana. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why I think it's absolutely amazing. And it's also interesting that like that Hackett has one scene by himself, um, so there's this, there's this, uh, Orson Scott card came up with this, um, uh, way of categorizing stories, uh, and he calls it the mice quotient and it's uh, milieu idea, character and event. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it, based on whether, which kind of story you're telling is uh, determining how you're going to structure it and how you're going to prioritize uh, what character gets screen time. And Milieu, for example, is, is uh, you know, Lord of the Rings is it's about the, the place that they're going to explore, this world that they're immersing, uh, immersing themselves in. Uh, idea tends to be like a lot of sci-fi tends to be based around an idea of like, what if, you know, like in the case of Arrival, what if language, the language of the universe is time and it explores the idea and that tends to take a front row seat where the character takes a back back seat to it. Uh, and then character obviously is where you would put the emotional journey of the character. Now, especially with modern uh, screenwriting, but even with modern novels, almost everything tends to be character. Oh, and then finally, event. Event is about a specific experience that usually a cultural experience, and it follows several different points of view um, of different characters experiencing that event. Now, in the case of network, I would say this is largely about an event, a a social and a cultural event that is exploring several different characters' perspectives. But because Chayefsky is such a sophisticated writer, uh, genuinely a brilliant writer, he's able to tell the, tell the event story about a big idea from very complex, interesting, fully dimensional characters. Um, so, so Network, yes, absolutely does have three protagonists. Where Prisoners is a two-hander, Network is one of those really rare movies that is a three-hander. You have three protagonists. But I do think that there are um, there are different levels of relevance to the story. So, for example, Max's character, as much as I identified with his moral positions, he mm-hmm. actually has very little impact on the actual story. He yep. represents kind of a supporting role. In a, in a big way, his relationship with Diana is a subplot. Mm-hmm. It, it informs and fills out the dimensions of the characters, but it doesn't uh, determine the actual plot. So uh, definitely Diana, um, Howard and Max all have a completely um, different dramatic question uh, and mm-hmm. impetus as they relate to each other. Okay. So let's dive into that. Uh, you don't think the, the impetus for the three of them is the same? No, and it's largely because of the role that Max plays in it. Max plays a very specific role. In the first act, um, he's, he, he plays a very dominant role, but he pretty much becomes sidelined very quickly. And that's mm-hmm. intentional. Like it, it's, it, None of this is an accident. It's very, very cleverly structured in such a way that like, for what Max represents, which we'll get into later, he, mm-hmm. he plays a very dominant form. He's protecting this moral voice, this integrity, and is immediately mm-hmm. sidelined. And once he's sidelined, that's when his story begins. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll, we'll sure. get into that. Okay, so let's look at the story structure. For for Diana, um, what is Diana's uh, dramatic question? So I what believe based on what, her, what she sets out to do is to make UBS the most the highest rated network in the the system. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, she wants to make UBS number one, by, but specifically by using Howard right. Beale. 
by exploiting Howard Beale. Yeah, yeah this now, is the story. The reason, I, the reason I left that out was because then she also utilizes the exploitation of, of other groups as well over time to be able to further her agenda. So that's the, why I didn't mention, like, obviously, initially, he wants, mm -hmm. she wants to exploit Howard Beale, but then she also wants to exploit the communist uh, group that she gets yeah. entangled with. So um, that's why I, I left the that out. The Ecumenical Liberation Army. Yeah. There you so, go. Yeah. yeah, I agree. At the very end of the movie the narrator comes in and says Howard Beale was the first person to be, this is the story of Howard Beale uh, being killed. Who is the first man to be assassinated for lousy ratings. It, it's brilliant. <laughs> it, it, the whole thing just turns into a but um bump joke. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so what, what that means is uh, it, specifically the narrator is telling you, this is a story of Howard Beale, but that's only one dimension to the story. So this, this becomes very quickly, this turns into a very complex, uh, almost like a spider web of uh, characters that we're going to, we're going to track each one and, uh, and then we'll see how this, how the um, story structure emerges. So the first one, definitely the dramatic question for Diana, I do see her as the primary protagonist mm -hmm. because she is the person with the most agency who's taking the most initiative and directly affecting all the different scenes. She is problem solving scene by scene by scene more so than Howard Beale, more so than Max. She is the problem solver in this. Um, yeah. So with Howard, what is his dramatic question? Will Howard achieve what? So this, this is definitely because like I, it, the, we need, we need to ask the question what's happening to him uh, yeah. uh, to a certain extent to know whether or not we are, as, because Howard initially he gets fired he gets fired from the network after working there for a very long time and his wife literally only died a few months earlier so he's he has nothing left to live for he gets fired from the network for, for having the poor ratings mm -hmm. then his so his first des desire seems to be to kill himself because he says he's, he then tells everybody he's going to kill himself on live television then after being sobered up a little, he says that was admittedly it was an act of madness, but it's because I'm tired of the BS. And then he receives a what seems to be a message from a you can't say God because he he insists it's not God, but it's some form of transcendental uh, agent that says that he has to tell the truth mm -hmm. that again gets interrupted for me and again so maybe it's maybe it's still the same thing but he gets will howard tell the truth seems to be tell tell the public the truth it's it's a hard one because there's no it like that seems like it makes sense on the surface because that's what he then wants to do throughout the rest of the film but it, then he meets um uh ned Beatty's character mm -hmm. and he's told something that kind of completely puts his world in a spin but he still wants to tell the truth and so he still goes out and goes out and tells the truth but the truth seems to be a little bit different from that point um but, and also to go out and tell the truth isn't a goal unto itself in terms of like, will he do that and achieve something at the end of the film? He, is he going to tell the truth every time he goes on, on um, every time he goes on stage is not 
a something building up to a final climax. So I struggle to know what his ultimate end goal is with, but through telling the truth to the public, unfiltered, what is the end game? I'm not entirely sure. So this is a great uh, question that reveals, it's only revealed in the subtext. You mm-hmm. can't, you can't believe what Howard Beale says. You have to decipher what he wants and how he goes about what he wants. He claims this high integrity of, I'm just here to tell the truth. But he wants to stay on the, on the, on the network. More okay. importantly, in the very beginning, we see who Howard Beale, what is really driving him at the very beginning, which is because he gets I've given to everything to this network. And they're just casting me aside. Yeah. So I believe the dramatic question for Howard is, will Howard usurp the audience away from the corporate media? Okay. Interesting. The whole story is about his sub subtextual revenge after giving a life to corporate media that's, mm-hmm. you know, like him trying to turn his suicide into a spectacle to teach a lesson. He wants to punish the corporate media that he's worked for that suddenly cast him aside. And the way sure. he's going to do it is by hitting them where it hurts. He's yeah. going to take their audience from them. And that's and what I do Diana like, sees. Yeah. I do like that. I do like that as an, a concept as well for the fact that like it, it takes away the, the sense of, of nobility from him because First of all, he makes a point of saying in, in one of his monologues that no man is noble. They, they, we don't have noble and virtuous um, uh, objectives and, and, and goals. No man does, according to him. But also the scene where he is being told, and they initially take it as a joke at first, they want to put Howard back on the air and they want him to be the mad prophet. Yeah. And then... They're like, no, we're rejecting it. Of course not. We're not going to be doing this. And, and then Howard says, don't speak for me. Hold on a second. Yeah. I, don't that's be, my don't, job don't, you're talking there. That's, that's <laughs> my job, right? That's my job. And then so then they're like, so do, you, so do you want to do it? And he goes, I think I could be the mad prophet. And so this is before he even has this engaging yeah. dialogue. He's not with a prophet this. figure. He's an angry man who is He's an angry man that is being de- uh, cast aside. Who he just is- wants to continue. Being on the air. He's being undermined in his status hierarchy, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So his dramatic question, will Howard usurp the audience away from the corporate media, um, it informs all the other decisions. The madness, the indulgence in his... Um, in what he says is the truth. And now specifically you see very well, by the end you see that what his concept of truth is totally malleable to whatever is going to serve his purposes. So this is largely about the reconciliation between him stealing the audience, showing, you know what, I can take this audience away from you and the corporate media. And this is the big question of network. And I just want this question to kind of linger in the audience's brain while we're discussing this. Who is the God of this world? Who is the God in this movie? And that I think is one of the most interesting questions. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay. So Howard Beale, he wants to take the audience away from the corporate media, from the network. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Max, what's Max uh, dramatic question? 
So I, I'm, in, I'm intrigued by the idea that you were saying that his story really begins after a certain point, And I'm assuming that you're talking about after he is fired from the network. So his story yeah. really begins after his dismissal. That being the case, the decisions he makes then thereafter are mostly in relation to him having this midlife crisis where mm-hmm. he wow. is engaging in a relationship. Midlife, I, it's so, yeah, it, they, they, they mention midlife in it a few times and then they mention winter and I'm like, yeah, it's, it's more winter, mate. I mean, come on, you're not exactly, you're not in your midlife exactly. Um, so yeah, but the, the, when he's having that conversation with his wife, the wife is the one who calls it the winter passion. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, he's having this. <laughs> so it's will Max indulge in his winter passion or will Max... I don't know. If he he does indulge, but the question is, he, he has indulge, a goal. Yeah. He has an objective that he's trying to achieve. Yeah. What is yeah. what has he said? Now, let me just say that Max is one of the reasons why he. I don't regard him as the protagonist. He's a very important figure in the entire story, especially in the allegory. Mm-hmm. Yes. But as a character, he's largely uh, an object. He's an objective. He he is a victim. He he's very passive. He's mostly reacting to things, but he yeah. doesn't, but he has one plot wise. He has one very specific objective at the beginning that serves to, um, well, we'll get into that, but, but he does have one very specific question that, that ties through the entire spine of the story. Yeah. This is why I found it interesting when you said that the impetus was different for each of them, because for me, the, the fact that they all, the story begins to unfold as a result of Howard's outburst on the, on, on his, um, on his show. Um, the initial instinct for me was to say, because Max and Howard are best friends is will Max rescue or protect Howard from being exploited by the network. But obviously then he gets fired from the network and then he never does. He he never does anything to protect to protect him. No. In fact, the only time he even makes some sort of posture to trying Mm -hmm. to protect Howard isn't actually to protect him. It's to get revenge at Hackett. And that all happens like literally in the first act. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. it's the it's the second time that he's sacked. So Max yeah, is yeah, a, yeah. he's a passive victim throughout all throughout this entire story, which kind of yeah. reveals Patty Chayefsky's uh, bias toward like, um, you know he 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 definitely saw himself in that as the moral voice, and the moral voice is being completely commandeered by this ravenous like shark like character of Diana. Um, but it's also interesting that the way he played the characters off each other in the romantic relationship, as though the the, the female was masculine and the and the male was feminine. So the male is being, the male is being dominated in in all all areas of his life for all intents and purposes. And uh, the and the female Diana, she is seen as being very masculine. When they go on their first date, she talks about, "I'm told that I have a very masculine temperament." And she talks about how the fact that in her romantic relationships she's terrible in bed because she doesn't last very long, uh, climax is too early, all this kind of stuff, which you don't normally hear of a, of a woman. This is normally things you hear about men being terrible in bed. And and she has that desire to just be completely all in in her work, which particularly, like, obviously there's there are ranges of of the kind of, you know, masculine men, feminine men, masculine uh, women, feminine women. You, you know, you've got ranges, but the masculine idea 
I, I it, you know, typically is the the one that's the, the guy who's married to his job and is just thinks too much about work, doesn't devote enough time to people. And women are considered more personable, more interested in, in individuals, less interested in, in, in work. Um, so there, there, he is, he's very much playing. And, and there's even a, a conversation where he has with his wife, when he tells his wife he's in love with Diana, he says that she has this script for us mm-hmm. where I am the female of, in the story. Um, I can't remember which yeah, I, right now it's escaping me, which novel he's quoting. Um, yeah, he, um, he says yeah, he's playing the scenes, if I have any criticism, it is the scene with, uh, with, uh, the wife, what's her name? Yeah. With Max's wife. It, it's, it's interesting. That actress won an Oscar for that performance as a yes, best supporting actress. Yeah. She was in the movie for five minutes and yeah. Um, it's one of the few scenes that I'm like, that one I feel like could have been that that's, that's a scene that was definitely a darling that I think could have been reined in and had more emotional impact, but let's not, let's not get (laughs) diverted too much. Um, so Max's dramatic question is central to his role in the entire allegory, uh, but also as a, as an actual character, his objective, he has a very specific objective, which is will Max get Diana to fall in love with him. Mm-hmm. That's yes. That's Every what he cries out for scene, in the second yeah. last scene in particular. Scene he's like, I is about him. Yeah. It's about him trying to get her to fall in love with him because yeah, he's, I know he's, she's allegorically, she's representing TV. She yeah. represents the, the, the network yeah. as in, in, in human form. Yeah, she's, uh, uh, she's and television so, incarnate, Diane. Well, tell, yes, but even just like let's separate the allegory and just look at it on the purely character level. His sure. objective is to get her to fall in love with him, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and then we we track every single scene is kind of this question of like he's asking himself: Is she really in love with me? Is this is this just you know fun sexual? He even says when he's, when he's leaving his wife he says i don't believe that, she, that she's capable of 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 emotion <laughs> yeah <laughs> he does, says, exactly you know, which is like why the fuck are you telling your wife whose heart you're breaking this horrible thing yeah that? i hate that scene i really hate that scene because it, it it's it's cruel anyway and it it, okay. it takes it the whole show is about melodrama but it's um that scene felt very uh it felt very close to the darlings that said it's sure. amazing actors that pulled it off. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So we have these dramatic questions and I want to, I want to plot this into the timeline because they mm-hmm. are distinct. Um, so this first dramatic question, Diana and Howard both kind of share from different perspectives. The dramatic question is posed. This is, this is a moment where the characters uh, where we end the first act and we go into the second act Um and that uh, that first question is posed uh, when Howard uh, is offered the job of angry prophet. Because mm-hmm. that's when we're like, okay, this, like literally if you end the movie there, we've got a solid sense of what the story is about. This is about a guy who is losing touch with reality. He's indulging his emotional react- responses and it's getting him success. And you're like, okay, this mm-hmm. is a movie about a guy's rise, probably rise and fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so with that, Diana is obsessed with Beale. It's in the first scene when we first are introduced to her, we learn that she wants angry shows. And mm-hmm. what does she get with Howard Beale? An angry man. And she casts mm-hmm. him as the angry prophet. 
It wasn't Howard Beale's idea to be a prophet. He was just, I'm so pissed at being treated this way that I'm willing to say anything because I've got nothing to lose. Yeah. She made a point of saying that he initially, he's just a curmudgeon. He's just an an old man complaining. He's not, uh, he's not the angry prophet until it's, he's, he, it's expected of him. Become prophetic. He, he, he says a lot of interesting truths, but all the truths are in the form of commiseration in particular. Yeah. So that happens at about 30 minutes. This is a two hour movie. So that is right on target for the first act. Um, And then uh, Max's uh, impetus is that scene where um, Diana comes in and seduces him like a shark. She is a shark. She is swimming through these waters. It's it's we're still still doing dramatic question now, right? Dramatic question is where, is where these questions are posed. Yep, that's correct. Okay. So you, are you suggesting that you said, you said that this was an impetus. So an impetus for one is- Oh, a, I'm is sorry. A no, that you're, thank you for pointing that out. This is, okay. well, it is a kind of impetus as well, but it's, it's immediately like his response is, oh yes, I'm taking this. From one scene, she comes in and seduces him to the next scene, they're having dinner. And yeah. then the question is, is will, can, will she, will Max- convince her to fall in love with him because mm-hmm. he doesn't like, it's not just about sex for him. It's largely about the validation of yep. feeling relevant and stuff. It's, it's that, you know, the, I love that phrase, the, the Meredith roar, you know, his, mm-hmm. his, his winter, passion. winter um, passion. So that that's posed from one moment where she shows up and seduces him to the next. So that impetus would be the moment she shows up and seduces him. And then, uh, the dramatic question, his dramatic question is posed to that. Now, all of the stuff in the first act with Max is pretty much just performing a function. Like he does have a plot of protecting his role as uh, executive producer of the news division. Um, but he's not. Um, but once that's done, I mean, he gets fired twice within the first, what is it? The first 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um Okay, so from there we have we've we've got this kind of basic like question that draws the whole movie together. We know this is a movie, a complex movie about uh, the rise of some uh, demagogue, a prophet figure, and a television production company is going to invest in making this prophet figure a media figure, which is very dangerous formula. Um, okay, so uh, what is the climax of this? Uh, and, and again, we do each, each character has a very specific climax. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is Diana's climax? Does she get the, get UBS to become a number one network? So I'm failing to remember right before so so they so they have an award ceremony where they're telling her that she's achieved record uh results but she says she does she says we're number one in in something at the moment and then by the end of the year we'll be number one period yeah um but there is a there is an issue with max's ratings after he has the conversation with mm-hmm. Ned Beatty. And so that creates a problem where he then becomes an issue they have to deal with. So I can't, I, to my memory, unless it's stated in the 
epilogue, like if it's stated during the narration at the end, I'm I'm forgetting it. Yeah, but so uh, the answer for me would be no because there's a. Okay, so this is where network takes on. Uh, this is why network is you know Sopranos level writing. It mm-hmm. it, it answers the questions <laughs> in a very complex way. Yeah. And and the way it does is it has an ironic ending. Now mm-hmm. we never see if UBS becomes number one. Mm-hmm. We only see that Howard Beale show is the number one rated show, but her objective is very specific. She says to become the number one rated show, we have to have the top six shows for yes. three quarters yeah. in a row. So we never see that. Yeah. We never see that. So the interesting thing is uh, her climax is largely around her character arc. And we'll, we'll get into that. But uh, in this case, this is what we would call an ironic tragedy. An ironic tragedy, you know, like... Um, so when we look at Robert McHugh's story, he defines irony as both a positive and negative charge. It's a positive and negative outcome. Where there's like... Um, there's good things about it and there's bad things about it. This is ironic in the way that it is subverting the expectations of the ideal. Um, it, it does have like positive and negative moral implications, I would say it largely has purely dark uh, implications. It's very sinister implications. So because Mm -hmm. of that, it's an ironic tragedy. So in her case, you can presume that she's going to spend the rest of her life pursuing this dragon. She will never be satisfied. So her idea of like, we're never going to get the next, the next. Exactly. And it's perfectly ended in that way. We never have the answer. We have, she never gets the answer to that dramatic question. But what we do learn is that she's willing literally to do anything to get Mm -hmm. there. And that's, that's Mm -hmm. what matters. So in her case, um, the, her, her climax is kind of a, (laughs) if she gets a climax at all, it comes really too quickly. And uh, she's in the middle of talking about something else. (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay. So with Howard's, uh, climax, you know, his, his objective is to take the audience from the corporation. What's his climax? He fails. He fails miserably. (laughs) Um, so exactly. So he becomes the voice of the corporate media. So the answer is no, he he becomes the voice of the corporate media and then he's snuffed out because of it. Yes. Uh, and then, so uh, Max's dramatic question: Does he persuade? Uh, does he get Diana to fall in love with him? Nope. nope. Diana, Diana has no idea how to be in love. Yeah, exactly. He realizes Diana doesn't have the capacity for love. She mm-hmm. won't risk that vulnerability. Uh, there's an interview with Sidney Lumet where he's talking about uh, Diana's character with Faye Dunaway, and Faye Dunaway's mm-hmm. she's one of my favorite actors. She's so complex and interesting and uh, you know like a modern day equivalent i would say is like something like julianne moore where she just has complexity and sincerity and all these different levels she has both vulnerability and harshness she's deeply human but somehow like also a monster she's Mm -hmm. amazing and what lumet was saying was when he was talking to faye dunaway is like he's like i don't want any vulnerability he's like i know the first thing you're gonna ask me for is vulnerability what is Diana's vulnerability? And his answer is none. She refuses to acknowledge any vulnerability. And he's like, I know what your instinct's going to be, Faye. In the moment where they're breaking up, you're going to want to show some sort of sensitivity, some, some longing. And he's like, if you show any vulnerability, I'll cut it out. 
I will cut away. He says, if, if, I, if I see your eyes get glassy, if there's yeah. any even sign of a tear in your eye, I can't use that shot. So don't do it. Which is interesting because she does do one thing. When they're breaking up, she walks into the bathroom or sorry, she walks into the kitchen and she's holding a teacup and it rattles. Mm. And then she <laughs> like, it's, it's just a subtle moment. And then she also says, don't leave. I'm like, that's mm. in the script. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's in the script that it was written that she is showing. So, so she is so showing some vulnerability. And yeah, I yeah. disagree with Lumet. I think it's great that she showed some vulnerability because you immediately saw she trans. You, she, you see, she's still struggling with her humanity because mm-hmm. she's like, I want to find love. I don't mm-hmm. believe for a second that, you know, her hooking up with Max is where she's going to find love. I don't think she even mm-hmm. believes that. But she does want that validation. And I think a lot of that comes down to, you know, like with all of us, psychologically, it comes down to like how she perceives love and her parental relationships and stuff. Um, yeah. But that that rattling cup and then she transitions and just turns to fury. As soon as she sees her vulnerability, it turns into anger and she lashes mm-hmm. out at him, which is fantastic. Which again is an extremely masculine thing. It's very, it's very common once men feel any kind of sense. Uh, again, these days, it's, you know, men are being given more options to express. I don't agree with that. Like, I, I, I mean, sure, there are masculine and feminine. There are different degrees of that. But I don't know. I think there's a lot of things that are just human conditions that we attribute to masculine and feminine. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that it's like, you know, that it's all compl- – I don't believe for a second that it's all constructed and stuff. But like – but that that's something that's, I think, very true to that character. You know, and I don't think we have to look in things in terms of broad, like this is masculine, this is feminine. To me, no, but really even in terms of is, this is how this individual is navigating these waters and this emotional yeah. construct. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that that, it, that it's not masculine to to cry or to show that 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 vulnerability. What I'm saying is that there it, there has been societal stigmas where a man showing that level of emotion has been looked down upon and therefore and I, I don't know what it's been like for you guys in the states for however length of time but i know in ireland for sure even in the countryside in ireland now there's it's very much men need to not be particularly weepy and so when we have that feeling with, with that we'll feel that feeling will come upon you because you're a human being mm-hmm. but you can and i notice myself doing it not because i i'm worried about being emotional like I, i'm very 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 vulnerable person but i will notice myself sometimes if i feel sad I can turn that into anger. I can just decide. I am going to make like I don't. The, the sadness is not going to behoove me. It's not gonna. It, it, I'm not gonna be able to use that to my gain. But if I turn it into anger, I might be able to get something out of that. And yeah. so, not necessarily that I'm gonna go well, be violent. I, you know, I don't think things. that's. You know, there there might be certain. Again, when you start talking about groups of people, that's what mm-hmm. saying this is masculine and this is feminine and stuff like that. Sure, whatever. But what it comes down to is that's true to that character. And that's yeah, what I think yeah, yeah. is really interesting. I don't think that Casser is, you know, a masculine woman. I think that Casser is a complex and interesting person, um, mm-hmm. which is no, you know, that's no virtue signal or anything. I think it, that that is the truth of that character. And that's what I think mm-hmm. Faye Dunaway is tapping into. Um, mm-hmm. And Lumet allowed it. He kept that in the cut. In fact, he might've given mm-hmm. her the direction for that. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So from, from there, we've got these uh, this kind of spine that ties into the climax. So the climax is definitely the moment when Howard Beale gets shot. You know, that's the end of the story. And it's it's handled in such a great way. He doesn't even get to say anything, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that, that, you know, that's, that gives us the whole spine. It gives us the, the broad strokes. And then we want to look at the, um, Oh, the climax with Max, uh, with Max is the moment where, uh, he gets canceled and Mm -hmm. literally in the dialogue, he says, I guess I'm a show that's not getting picked up for a season two. You know, I'm getting canceled. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's basically saying we're following a script here. We're just characters. We're, we're fully dimensional people who are reducing ourselves to character tropes on a page. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, and that's the moment where he just accepts it, you know, and has some still tries to hold on to some dignity, uh, packs his bags and leaves her. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got that climax and that's why he's kind of, you know, especially for most of the film, he's a supplementary character. He's definitely the way Patty, he, he's clearly expressing what Patty Chayefsky is posing as the moral voice of the story, you know, Max represents the, the moral position or the high, the ideal of the position mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and who's, who's being largely dismissed and disregarded. Um, so then we get into the impetus and the impetus again is the, the thing that starts the whole story. Um, I can't believe we're already an hour 15 and we're just barely scratching the surface of the structure. It's, very <laughs> it's a complex film. And it, it is, is. A complex. Uh, so uh, Diana's impetus what would you say that is? Um, I, so I've I, even looking at it from the perspective of it being a three-hander. I still I can't get out of the. I think for 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 at least for Diana and Howard, I feel like his um his outburst is what sets everything in motion. Um, but I could be wrong about Diana, but I do feel like for the two, for the two of them, that's what presents the opportunity that puts them both on the trajectory that they end up on for Max. So when Howard, when Howard gives that spiel, I've just, I've gotten, I've just ran out of bullshit Mm -hmm. right after that. He walks outside the, the company and he's swarmed by other journalists Mm-hmm. And we cut to Diana who's sitting there watching it and her, her lover is like kissing her back and she's like, back off, stop bothering me. She's yeah, yeah. keyed into him and she's Fully like, in. this is, yeah. this is the anger that I'm looking for. And she's yeah. obsessed. So that, mm-hmm. that impetus uh, is both the same for Diana and Howard, almost the same. Howard, the impetus is uh, when, when he commits to speaking the truth, but basically when he realizes um I'm going to, I'm going to speak the truth no matter what. And it's, and I'm being rewarded for it. I'm getting the audience that I've always known that I deserve. And Mm -hmm. Diana sees that she immediately obsesses over uh, his sudden fame. And she's like, this is what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And then of course with Max, uh, he's seduced by Diana. So when, when Mm -hmm. she comes and seduces him, that's, uh, that's that scene right after the, the, it would be at the beginning of act two. Um, but he also sure. plays a very important role in the first act. Like he's almost kind of a, he's not quite a lead character because he's still reactionary. He's still reacting to everybody else, mm-hmm. but he's a big, he plays a big role on justifying how is it possible that Howard Beale gets a second chance. He already says he's going to kill himself yeah. on, on, lair, on live television yeah, and he gets a second chance, which starts to, you know, strain credulity. But then yeah, all yeah, of a sudden, yeah. with, after the board meeting, 
Max uh, suddenly hits, once he's uh, stabbed in the back of the board meeting, he's like, you know what? I'm so sick of being treated this way. He feels similar to Howard. I'm just going to let Howard articulate my rage. I'm going to let him do that. Yeah. So that's, that's yeah. Max. So that's, that's the role he plays in the larger kind of macro structure. And then he's out. Yeah. He's served his purpose. Then after that, he's pretty much just a subplot. Yeah. And a stand in then for the, uh, the allegory. Yeah. He has a very, this particular representation in the allegory, but he, yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, uh, but it, but it is an incredibly important and pivotal uh, uh, role to have in that the impetus doesn't happen. If Max doesn't say, um, yes, we're giving Howard a shot to go on and say his goodbyes. Exactly. And then when he goes on and gives his goodbyes and he says bullshit on TV, which of course at the time you should have just been like, <coughs> cut him off yeah. because you couldn't say anything like remotely like that on cable TV back then. Yeah. Um, and, and they're like, okay, cut him off. And Max is like, leave him, leave him on. So he's like, he's made two decisions. One to put him on to say his goodbyes. Then when he's saying his goodbyes and he's, and, and he starts saying what he's saying, Max decides to keep him on. And then to doubling down yet again, he gets told, Hackett's on the phone. Tell Hackett to go fuck himself. Yeah. Like that's you know he's like this is it. I'm all in on this. Yep. But it is interesting for his character development as well that he then goes to he is ready is be, be, reprimands in the next day by saying, "Look, if you had just waited for the morning meeting like I told you, yeah, I would have said." that I'm not going to go through with anything without the approval of certain people, including yourself. But you acted like a spoiled child yeah. throwing your bottle out of the pram for all intents and purposes. And now we're in a position where you, your position is untenable and I want your resignation by the morning. Yeah. So Max's belligerence and his immaturity is a huge factor in, 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 in the impetus happening in the way that it does. Yeah. And at the same time, I get it. You know, he's, yeah, yeah, he yeah. got screwed over by Hackett in the, in the board meeting that said, if, you know, if I was ready, the first thing I would have done was gone up to Max and be like, come on, let's go talk about this because exactly. You know, yeah, yeah. 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 Like that's yeah. a totally foreseeable, like, you know, he's fucking over one of his best friends and yeah. a guy who they have a long standing relationship, has a huge investment in with his, yeah. with his news division. Um, cool. So what is the midpoint midpoints are next, uh, big, um, uh, culmination or the big landmark that we're shooting for i'm mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore <laughs> I, I think like that happens to coincide like like literally right on the hour mark if i'm not mistaken or somewhere around there where he's having that where he's gone from this is where things really take off there's a, a whole new trajectory now because of his ratings because he 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 isn't just so he comes on after going missing and he shows up in his pajamas and a trench coat. When I, 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 I'm, I'm here to give to make witness. I must or make a witness. What do you do, Mr. Beale? I must make my witness. Sure thing, Mr. Beale. It's yes, one of my favorite jokes in the entire movie. <laughs> I must make my witness. That's <laughs> nice, sir. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so he walks in and he sits down and he's having this. It's the first sort of uh, you know tumultuous kind of uh, uh, show of emotion uh, where he's like. He's really giving it to the crowd where, and, and it gets people, it actually gets, you can see as a result of the. His power um, over the audience. The power over the audience. They actually go to the windows and open yeah. the window and scream and you're, and they're getting the phone call saying this is happening all over the place. He's got them. He has them yeah. in the palm of his hand. They are going to the windows and they're shouting out, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. And so that's when things really take off for the network. And we see the characters 
So typically in a tragedy, the midpoint is actually a moment of success because the you're you're then gonna have the failure at the end, if I'm not mistaken, generally speaking. So remember, so, mid, uh, the, the, the function of a midpoint is that it changes the strategy of the protagonist. Strategy, yeah. So the success, doesn't the success of what so happens- How is that a change in, in strategy? Because then the, the, the resulting success of that show changes the, the format of the show and the popularity of the show for Howard. So he goes on then to have a different kind of form. Like he's then on, on this show where it's really highly produced and he's got these new uh, co-presenters and, the, you know, the, um, the, the psychic and stuff like that. So he's got this new sort of um, angle to work with, new audience to work with. Um, it's also then when the narrator comes back in at that exact moment as well. And he's like, so they say, here's all the things that have changed from what just happened. <laughs> so I feel like that's also kind of a, kind of an indicator, but then Diana immediately then is like, right, huge success. I have more leverage. Let's go and talk to the communists and we start get, getting them in on the act. And she's got a new, she's not just working with Howard anymore. She's now working with the show that she pitched at the very beginning of the movie. I think when we first see her, so let me stop, let pitching. me stop you. So we don't get too far in down the digression. I, I, so I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, so the strategy is actually consistent. The, the thing that they're setting out to do, they're achieving with that. I'm mad as hell. It's everything Diana wants. It's capturing the audience for the network. Howard Beale mm -hmm. is achieving what he set outs to do, mm -hmm. what he sets out to do. Set outs. Mm -hmm. um, but what happens, this is, this is a culmination of a sequence, but it's not the mid so you think it's the next monologue. So the, and what I mean by the culmination of a sequence is usually, you know, in a, a two-hour movie, we tend to have eight sequences, according to um, uh, Frank Danielle, a uh, brilliant playwright, strongly informed uh, screenwriting head. And this guy, Paul Gulino, who's a protege of Frank Danielle, wrote the book, The Sequence Approach. It's a fantastic book. I strongly recommend it. Um, and there's this book called Story by Numbers that I really recommend. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's <laughs> one of the different techniques that I've incorporated into my method for story structure. Um, yeah. And, and what I identify as the, the culmination of that, that second act is the first sequence in the second act. It's, the, it's called the first trial win. And this is where the character, they set out to solve the problem. And this is their first time that they actually get to prove what they're good at. This okay. is what Howard Beale is like. I am born for this. I am born to be charismatic, to give speeches that are emotionally evocative they're powerful rhetoric and they absorb us emotionally he is showing off everything he is slaying that dragon right in front of everyone. So that's the end that's the end of sequence three that's the end of sequence three exactly it's the first okay. trial win and this okay. is it's it usually uh it typically it shows all of the strengths of the protagonist and then would you say, say that's also what's referred to as the first pinch point I, I don't know pinch. I've heard a few people refer to pinch point. I'm not quite sure what that's referring to. The, um, end, the, end, the end of sequence three and the end of sequence five will be where the, where there is a demonstration of strengths and weaknesses. Um, can, it can be the, the demonstration of the strengths of the protagonist can also be the demonstration of the strengths of the, of the antagonist. Okay. Um, so from just from the perspective of at least my paradigm that I work with, uh, the, the protagonist 
and again, all of this is subject to change. You can take all these plot points and switch them up and move them however you want. Just prototypically, uh, the convention is that in the second act, the main character, the protagonist is setting out to do an, uh, some objective. And in the way that they, their talents, uh, they have this first trial. It's an ordeal that shows off what they can do. And it's kind of, it's, it's usually what ends up becoming part of their hubris because they're like, Hey, I slayed this dragon. Remember how good I was at that. And then, you know, the third act is all about that unraveling and you see all their weaknesses. So the second act, you see all their strengths. The third act, you see all their weaknesses and it deconstructs the character until they uh, arrive at their low point uh, where their weaknesses have uh, completely uh, unraveled and exposed their Achilles heel. Uh, so that, that second act, I'm sorry, that first trial win uh, is part of what propels them toward the midpoint because they think, oh, okay, I can do this. I'm really good at this job. I can slay this dragon. You know what? Mm-hmm. Let's go slay the big dragon, the big boss dragon. Then they get to the midpoint and they learn, oh, shit, this dragon's a lot bigger. I slayed that other dragon, but that was like a baby by comparison. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, the midpoint in network is that that next monologue where he says, turn your television off, turn them off and leave them off, turn them off and leave them off, turn them off and leave them off. He always, he's really good at getting those kind of rhythmic uh, hooks uh, mm-hmm. with the ideologically uh, slogans. Slogans, yeah. Yeah, and he, basically everything, all of his ideologies are kind of summed up into kind of a slogan. So it's like this thought-stopping programming of your brain where you don't have to use rationality anymore. You can just use the slogan as a kind of pretext to not engage the actual concepts. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you can see that with, with Howard is he, when he gets to the moment where he says, turn them off and leave them off. The reason why that's the midpoint is because what he is saying is he is biting the hand that's feeding him. Mm -hmm. He is saying he's a, he's flexing for the network that is his boss at this point. He's saying, I'm the one in control. If you want this audience, they will do whatever I tell them. I'm the puppet master here. That's why all of this pretense of him being like some enlightened prophet and all that bullshit. I think Chayesky is saying it's all bullshit. There's, there's mm-hmm. no revelation here. The, the revelation is, is largely cynical power uh, struggles. Mm-hmm. So this midpoint, when he says, turn them off and leave them off, he is creating a huge problem because all of a sudden the one thing the network does not want people to do is turn off the TV. So now that forces them into renegotiating a different uh, strategy. And that's when um, all of a sudden Diana finds herself from being, this is the guy we need to wait a minute. You can't tell people to turn off the TV. We need them watching. So, so that midpoint shifts the, it makes their, um, uh, it makes the relationship much more complex. And that does happen at an hour, five minutes. So in a two hour movie, boom, right in the middle midpoint. Oh, okay. The hour, five minutes is, is where he's t- turn it off, leave it off. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So that, okay. um, so the, uh, mad as hell, we're not going to take it anymore actually happens at about 45 minutes. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I, it's pretty I, early on. Um, so okay. low point, <laughs> this is a really interesting one. Uh, yeah. And each character has their own, their own kind of low point. Uh, what's Diana's low point. 
So this is an interesting one that we discussed before when we did the signs episode. Uh-huh. We discussed the low point and we had a we had a, a conflict in terms of uh, what we felt that the the low point was, uh, as we do. And um, so you, uh, I, th- I think what was interesting about it is the the so so when you consider the low point, do you consider from the perspective of the character, or do you, cons- do you consider from the perspective of the audience? Because sometimes what we may feel is the lowest moment for us emotionally in the film might not actually be commensurate with what the lowest point is for the character. And so I, can I say something about that real quick? I I actually think you make, that's a really good point. I've, I've thought about that a lot since we had that discussion on signs Mm -hmm. and like, you're right. The most emotionally gut wrenching part of signs is watching his wife die. Like that mm-hmm. genuinely brought tears to my eyes watching it. I think there's a good case to be made that the low point in the story of faith is a total deny, not a denial, a retribution of God. Someone, someone clip this, please, and put it on the internet. <laughs> that basically just said that there's an argument to be made that I'm right about a low point. <laughs> no, I, you know, I think there's a, the, the only thing is, is that with, with the low point, I I think what the psychological dynamics of science is that you have to face your lowest low. Like he was resisting. It's kind of like when I get sick and I have, I feel nauseous. I hate throwing up. Mm-hmm. I'd rather just feel sick for six hours. But if I just threw mm-hmm. up and feel a lot better and it's like, I yeah, don't yeah, want yeah. to, I don't want to, I don't want to, because it's I, when I throw up, it's really violent, horrible. <laughs> so I rarely do. Um, And I feel like that with signs, there's too much of a digression. Basically, yes, the low point might in that case function uh, in the story of faith. But I, okay, let's get back to network. (laughs) We'll 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 arbitrate this later. So Um, so so taking signs out of it, it's it it, you know it's an interesting digression. But 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 the fact is, we need to consider whether the low point is is low as a result of it being the character's personal low point, or is it the point where we feel most dejected as a result of what we're experiencing through the crossing the threshold and and engaging with with the material. Now, when it comes to plotting, it really does come down to what is the protagonist's objectives. And yeah. how do they feel about those objectives? Because it's the the right. emotional state that d- determines the roller coaster, that determines whether a scene is is changing or not, or turning. Okay. So in Diana's low point, w- you know, where is the moment where she's lowest, where she w- that gives her the conviction that she needs, that turns her into the person that she is. So it is Max leaving her. I mean, that I totally I, agree. When, when you you could again, it's it, you know it's the function of Max in the story where like she is then you know, she she immediately reverts to okay yeah no I'm the cold hearted bitch like I I'm I'm I, that I'm not this person who's going to go and have love and have mm-hmm. I'm I'm all about the work yep and so that's why she as soon as she, she that relationship is severed it's like yeah okay no we can kill Howard yeah. that's cool that's Max was her last strand connecting her to humanity. And yeah. once, once she decided to drive him out, I mean, I, I'm, I'm using the word abandoned by Max as a kind of ironic euphemism. She's the one that drove mm-hmm. out Max, sure. but also Max. I, I do think Max would have stuck around longer. Um, if he had, Certainly. if she had, he felt like that was hope. she, she robbed him of hope. Yeah. She robbed him of hope because yep. that she, he was like, yeah, this is not going anywhere. Cause even she then says when he's leaving, she's like, you're being awfully docile about this. 
like you know we're having a breakup right now the yeah. last uh, uh, you know conversation we had was very heated are we gonna are we not gonna have another one of those yeah because that's where the passion is and he's like yeah and it's interesting that like Mac, the, the, one of the, the interesting character traits with Max is once he's, co- he comes to terms with things very quickly. Cause even when he, like he's standing in front of his wife, having the conversation with her, where she has this massive monologue about the fact that, that they're not going to be together anymore. And then right at the very end, she's like, are you not going to say something? And he goes, I have nothing to say. <laughs> and then just hugs her. And it's like, okay, well, See, you that's just the like, moment, like that's where the scene should have ended. And then instead he goes on a monologue where he's, like pontificating to the wife whose life he's decimating. And he's sitting there yeah, pontificating yeah. about, well, you know, this is just some dalliance and I'm just a metaphor yeah. to her. And she has a script and it's like, why the fuck are you saying this to your wife? Who you're yeah, destroying? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I hate Get that. Scene. I, I genuinely, <laughs> I love this movie and I love what it's saying, but I, that scene, he should have killed. Goes a step too far. If he would yeah, have yeah. said, I have nothing left to say. And the scene ended there, that would have punched it in the gut. And I think it would yeah, have had yeah, yeah, more yeah. dramatic resonance. Absolutely. I think because of the the actors are so compelling that they still manage to invest in the characters. But I hate that writing. I hate that, that that one moment in writing. Yeah, they still have the lines where it's like you know she's the TV generation. She she learned everything she knows yeah. from Bugs Bunny. Like it, they're cool lines that you'd lose if you ended it where it should have ended. And yeah, it and says I don't- a lot about. But that's but, the thing is like, we're already getting that. Like I actually dislike yeah, yeah. the line, your TV, your television incarnate, Diane. I, I don't like that line right. at all because it's like, yeah, I know. Like that's where the we metaphor is. That's we the allegory. It. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah, like yeah. writing a poem about how, you know, love is a boat. And then the last stanza of the poem is saying that the boat represents the love, boat, by love. the way. It's like, don't give me <laughs> criticism in the middle of the art form. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But it's, so, it's like having so, a painting, a portrait of a woman holding a, a dagger to someone's back. And, you know, this is a metaphor for it's like, no, don't explain it. Let, let the metaphor stand. <laughs> let us do the yeah, work. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Okay. So when she's abandoned by Max is her low point. Um, and for so, Howard, his low point is the same as the climax. Which, yes. Uh, you know, couldn't get much lower for him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't get much lower. At the same time, because it's ironic, this is an ironic tragedy. It's also the fulfillment of what he wanted from the very first scene, a shotgun to the head. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was going to kill himself. But it is what, what I think is particularly tragic about it is obviously that he's robbed of his agency because if you're going to commit suicide, at least you're doing it yourself. Whereas he's now being successful in his mind and then his life's taken from him by the network yeah. instead of by his own agency yeah yeah uh okay and then max's low point is the moment before he leaves her that's when he realizes you know there's actual real life going on here diane that Mm -hmm. whole spiel where he's kicking his novel and ranting and yeah yeah yeah. all that kind of like you know that that that's the moment where he realizes there really isn't any hope here Uh, this is this is literally just a candle that's burned itself out. I'm just waiting for the for the flame to to die, and I'll I'll be out. I'll pack my luggage. Um, yeah, and that's yeah. when he realizes how much he got played, and not just that he got yeah. played. He played along too. He you know he willingly uh, wrecked his wife's life, and you know hearing that stuff about my wife is having a hard time dealing with all of this is it's devastating. I hate. <laughs> I hate that story. Yeah. But I think yeah. it's great to portray that. Like it's really powerful to portray it. 
I just don't mm-hmm. believe it for a second that he'd be sitting there monologuing and pontificating over metaphors to his wife. Um, oh, look, I never, I never put it past most characters. When our characters are doing really strange things like that in movies, I don't put it, I, I, I don't ever allow myself to kind of, to suspend the disbelief uh, or to, no, to, sorry, I don't allow myself to disbelieve based on characters doing unusual things because I try and assume that just because it's not what I would do or it's not something that it's ever been in my sphere, my moral sphere, that it's not part of somebody else's. If some people can be cold and sociopathic or any kind of way, it's like, okay, that's 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 the way they are. Well, sure, and, but and like so Max, Max is the moral voice. His wife is also the moral voice and their connection, their love, their maturity and all that stuff. I, I don't I don't believe for a second that she would sit there and entertain his bemused attitude toward the affair he's having. I think I don't think he's a moral be, voice hurt the most mature voice what's up i don't think he's moral. i think he's the most mature voice i don't think he's the most moral voice i don't think he is the moral voice at all i think there's there's Mm -hmm. too much there's too much to max where he shows himself being um no more noble than anybody else and again you you know i think that 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 howard's um monologue where he says do you think if you think that one man is noble then that's the bullshit like so i i you know, I well, think that Howard, we I, can dive into the moral voice when it comes to like everybody ha- represents a certain moral ideology or moral value system. And what I mean by Max is the moral voice. Well, we'll get into that with, with the allegory when we talk about it. Um, <laughs> sure. But yeah, no, it's a really good point. I do think Max, he doesn't represent an ideal, but he does represent a moral value system. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the hook, obviously, I'm going to kill myself on live television. One of my favorite openings in a movie of all time where mm. they're, they're, they've got this amazing scene where everybody's producing the people who are producing the show have no idea what he's saying. And they're like, all right, everybody cue commercial. Okay. That was a great setup. And then they're like, what, what did Howard just say? I, it's so good. I love this movie so much. If I, if I were to, if I were to critique anything personally, like I loved this movie very much. Um, very, like I really enjoyed it. I'm glad I got, had the opportunity to finally check it out. If I were to critique anything personally, it would be the, it would be the lead into the hook because yeah. I don't like, I don't like the narration. I don't like the way that it's set up. The hook itself is so good. There, I, I believe that if this movie was made today, it would have it would have been so much worse probably with you know well i can't say that for sure the movie is perfect the way that it is so you could hardly do a better job if it was made today but i think with modern uh cold opens being what they are i think that many other prolific directors today would have done a better job at starting the film than them what yeah um, like the opening scene like, is literally narration and then two guys going to a bar and he tells his buddy he's like he's you're getting yeah. fired let's get shit faced i, I agree show, i think if they had just started with you know all of the kind of the sorkin opening of like okay yeah yeah production we've got the lights the camera and then he comes off and he says i'm gonna kill myself that would yeah, 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 I yeah. agree. I think that would have been like, holy shit, where is this movie going? Yeah, <laughs> I do agree yeah, with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But I yeah. but that first opening uh, sequence is still part of the opening scene because they they use that to build up yeah. to the motives yeah, yeah. to inform his motives. Which I we already got those motives as soon as he gives his monologue of like this is why this is why I want to shoot myself is because I've just been informed I'm being fired. It's like yeah, we we knew that because from the narrator. So I agree. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have, you know, if I were editing this, 
I would have definitely pitched the idea of just starting with production and then he announces because it would have shocked. It would have been that much more shocking. Once we yeah. already know that yeah. he's like uh, fired and feeling horrible and his life is feeling meaningless, then we were like, yeah, he's probably going to say something like that. Yeah, and it would have been absolutely. much more like a, a, a dramatic pop. But um, yeah. yeah, really great point. But that's that I, I, I love this scene so much. Um, and then there's this, there's this very interesting structural moment. So we're getting a strong idea, dramatic question, end of act one, midpoint, end of act two, we've got the climax, which is the culmination of act four. And there's this very interesting, unique structure that, uh, that Chayefsky wrote into, um, the culmination of act four, um, and that is uh, what I'm calling the apotheosis. And the apotheosis, you know, apotheosis is, is usually where a religious figure is brought into the presence of, of their God and they're declared a kind of saint status and they're kind of commissioned. And this is when, mm-hmm. you know, they, they are declared a holy figure or a sacred figure and they have a kind of revelation moment. And this is that moment with Ned Beatty. Um, where Arthur Jensen yeah. gives him the "You Will Atone," one of the most iconic movies in film. It's uh, yeah. that, that's what's amazing about this movie is it has you know five or six iconic moments in film. Yeah, it's not just you know one film is lucky to have a single iconic image or iconic scene. Yeah, this yeah, has yeah, five yeah. or six iconic scenes. So many, so many, and, and that particular scene is so weighty. There's so much going yeah. on. I've seen in the face one, of God. You oh, just yeah. might be right. Yeah, and he's you know, and, and the, the entire conversation about how the world works. Like you're just you're just sitting there. This is is this an education? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's a really weird kind of like relationship to how you, you know you could sit and listen to every single line of that dialogue and then sit there and analyze and okay, okay, how, what is this true or not? Yeah. Is this like, it's, it's really heavy stuff. It's just so heavy and it's really, really great. That scene is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And then also just the way that he goes about it, where he's like, he, so he's like, I'm going to dim the lights. <laughs> just like, you got I'm going to bring you into the office because it seems like a better place to do this. And he brings him in and, and, and dims the lights. And then it's like, shout. Yeah, <laughs> just, it's, he just transforms. Like, Yep. Yeah, just instantly. And then he's, and he's like, you will atone. Am I getting through to you? <laughs> like, just, <laughs> it's, like, it's so performative. And even he knows it's performative. He goes, I have to deliver this in a very bombastic, entertaining, a way that keeps your, your, your imagination, your, holds your attention, right? I, I'm delivering it in this way because that's how I'm supposed to do this, which is the exact same way that Diana talks about the media. It's like, it's, it's show business as well as, as well as news. Like you yeah. needs to have that razzmatazz and he's de- demonstrating that while he's giving this whole spiel. And then he's stopping to go, am I getting through to you? Yeah. Cool. So we have the, uh, the apotheosis. We've got the hook impetus, dramatic question, midpoint apotheosis, uh, which is usually kind of a low point. Uh, in the conventional structure, because that's usually like it, it, the the fourth act culminates, or sorry, the third act culminates in the low point, which propels them toward the climax. But because this is a very unconventional, very complex and sophisticated movie, he's playing with structure on a level that, and you never lose attention. It never gets boring, scene by scene by scene. It mm-hmm. constantly raises stakes and compels and uh, beautifully done. 
Um, so from there, I wanted to look at like um, the threads, the the emotional line uh, of the characters. Usually, like a, a movie kind of uh, follows like you know that kind of roller coaster up and down, uh, according to the protagonist. And we saw in Prisoners that we had uh, one character who was kind of a noir detective type. So he had you know one or two dips. Well, the main character, or well, um, Hugh Jackman's character, the other part of the two-hander, is just all over the map. And because so he's actually suffering contract. with the loss of his child. Yeah, his missing loss of his own child. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, but in this case, we have three very different emotional journeys between the characters. Mm-hmm. So the first one with Howard, this is about a rise and fall story. This is all about this. This whole arc is about the ascendancy to transcendence or tra- transcendence, transcendentalism. <laughs> it's about the ascendancy to transcendence, uh, and then the fall from that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's presented in a really ironic, and it goes back to this idea of what is who is the god of this world? Uh, and then we have Max who actually is pretty steady. He, he has a few like temperamental tirades, but for the most part, he's kind of this like grounded, rational voice who's yep. making decisions that are, you know, shitty as a husband, but they're, but they're grounded on, okay, you, you can see why he's making these decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have Diana and this is what's so interesting about her is she is all over the map. She's one moment like euphoric from tracking with Beale. She starts to follow his rise and then she'll be come down and be grounded by Max. Um, and just looking at this, you can, this looks like a spider web. This looks like a subway map. It's, it's just the, the, the range of emotion. Like Howard is pretty much a pure trajectory of straight up and then collapse. Mm-hmm. Max is this kind of slow, steady burn. And then Diana is back and forth between the two. She's mm-hmm. chasing, which is what speaks to her character arc. Uh, she's, you know, she's chasing the high of Howard, but she also wants the grounded affection of Max. And that's why yeah. I definitely think that Di- this is Diana's story. She is the protagonist. Yeah, yeah. She's not a hero by any means, but she is a very complex and layered, interesting, fascinating character. Mm-hmm. Um, so this gives us the story structure, the forex structure. We see that dramatic question right at 30 minutes. And this is what I thought was really interesting. These culminate almost perfectly as television episodes. If you end act one at 30 minutes, you have uh, Beale getting the job as the mm-hmm. mad prophet. Do you want to be the mad prophet? And then the next one, it ends with him saying, turn them off and leave them off. If that episode ended with credits, turn them off and leave them off credits. That's a perfect television episode. Yeah. And then 35 minutes later, you get uh, Ned Beatty saying, you will atone. I've seen the face of God credits. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the final act is a 25 minute episode of them deciding we need to take Howard Beale out. Mm-hmm. It's perfectly structured this way. Now, Chayefsky yeah. was also a, a, a television writer and I mean, he did everything, but, mm-hmm. um, and he structured, this was perfectly structured for drama as well as sitcom and in many ways informed what we know as modern day dramas. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So this structure is absolutely fantastic. Let's talk about the, the kind of character dimensions of how these different uh, dramatic questions and the unconscious drive and Achilles heel motivated these plot decisions, these strategic decisions. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to go through this kind of quickly. So I'll just throw some of these out and then uh, check in with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so Howard's conscious desire, obviously, is, like we discussed earlier, is he wants to take the audience. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and his unconscious drive, his unconscious drive. Oh, and he wants to take the audience by speaking the truth. He learns that that truth is how to get the audience. The mm-hmm. audience is looking for authenticity and they're specifically looking, they're responding to someone who is articulating their rage. Their rage, exactly what Diana tells them to do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the thing that he was, as a news anchor, he was never allowed to articulate any emotion. He had to be dispassionate and mm-hmm. objective. Mm-hmm. Um, totally as a conscious drive. From today. <laughs> What's that? Totally different from news anchors from today. There's a, yeah, a- we're going to get into that. <laughs> uh, so his Achilles heel, uh, he believes that the power... Uh, oh, he believes that those in power are his adversaries. So he looks at the network as his enemy, his antagonists. Mm-hmm. And, and because of that, what he sees as truth is largely a kind of commiseration against the elites, those who have power. Mm-hmm. And the moral imperative is to speak them, to speak his mind. He becomes the voice of his cor- of the corporation. He becomes the voice of the elite. He goes from being the person who is attacking the elite to speaking for them. And that's mm-hmm. very, very specific. That is the genius of network is it says that what starts out as kind of a, a criticism of power turns into an exploited means of, um, of exerting what power wants. They become the voice of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, this turns into the theme, the madness of the zealots become the puppets of the powerful. And that's like, it's, it's perfectly illustrated by the, the, by Howard Beale's whole journey. It starts off as an authentic rant and the rant turns into a performance and his performance is, I just need to rant even more and say what everybody says. And then it turns into, oh, I'm here. I'm going to beat the corporation at their own game to not only am I not going to beat them, I'm going to become the corporation. I'm going to become their puppet. Yeah. It's it's re- like that is like, for me just to just to kind of while we're on this particular point, that is the thing about this movie that it leaps at. Like there was the big, most influential thing, the thing that stuck out I mean, the most in my mind, the thing that kind of spoke to me personally on a greater level than anything else in the whole film. The reason being is that it speaks to the idea that no matter what rage you're exhibiting, no matter who your enemy is, no matter who you feel you're up against in this world, that will always end up being used to the detriment of what your of what your goal is if that makes sense so like she diana references the fact that uh i want i want i want rage i want uh i want to angry shows right and i want the third thing was i want um anti-establishment right and then when she said that that for me stood out because when i when i grew up like i i was very much when i when i finished secondary school 
I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. And I fell in with a group of people who were creating alternative media. I got into the media originally because they were, they, they, we were, we created an alternative media channel where we were discussing things that the mainstream media wouldn't talk about things that we felt were being covered up. So I talked to you before about like having, have a kind of a conspiracy background to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And so this for me really stood out that like all the people who think that they're on a certain, uh, we're, we're, we're waking people up to X, Y, and Z that's going to get used as like, Oh, people are really getting behind this. People like these people are getting a following. We're going to use that. And that's just going to become part of the system. That's just going to become part of the system. The system is the system. And you can get angry at this, that, or the other, but that's just going to become the new thing that we latch onto and turn to fuel our agenda because there is just one homogenized corporate interest that is, mm-hmm. that is bigger than, bigger than, again, I'm getting into my, I'm wearing my, my tinfoil hat now, but bigger than countries, bigger than, than nations. It's just, there, there is. Like, it's a college of corporations. College of corporations. <laughs> There is only this one entity, right? That is like, so, so you're always feeding into that, whatever it is, uh, uh, Democrat, Republican, go bigger nations, go bigger, whatever it is. It's all just feeding into the one system that he refers to as like atomic, subatomic, galactic. It, this is just truth. This is just the world is a business. And so it's, uh, and that's just like, like between Diana articulating what I a, a kind of a position I would have taken very, you know, I, I would have been very much involved in it at, a, at a, an earlier seminal part of my life. And then that that monologue from um, from Ned Beatty, where he's he's talking about what the world, how the world really works. This is how it actually functions. It just kind of blew my mind that I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. even when I was railing against the system, I was just being a cog in the system. Yeah. You know, and that was just really like, the corporation oh. wants you to rail against the corporation yeah. because that's how they sell you. Exactly. Their... Yep. Okay. So, um, so from there we see that, uh, Max, his conscious desire, again, he wants Diana to fall in love with him, mm-hmm. his unconscious drive. He wants to prove he's still relevant. And, and, you know, again, he represents truth. He represents the integrity of presenting the news dispassionately because, you know, this is the fourth estate. He has the the philosophy of a the news is a fourth estate, which means they are there as a function of democracy, as a function of informing the masses so that they can make the political decisions they need to. Mm-hmm. It's not about sensationalism. It's about conveying the truth that needs to be told. Um, and all of a sudden people don't care about that. They, so a lot of this is metaphorized in how he wants to still be part of the conversation is an objective truth still part of that. Um, so his Achilles heel is he believes making Diana love him will distract him from his death. So it's almost like this thing of like, I know that I'm on my way out, but can I at least have some legacy here? Mm Mm-hmm. And the story is, no, you don't get a legacy in this. This is not about truth anymore. This is not about dispassionate, objective truth. Everything is through the filter of, of passion. Um, and so his moral imperative is to make Diane love him, he must become as single-minded as her. He has to compromise the integrity of truth in order to, to, he, he must indulge in a spectacle Mm -hmm. and he can't do that. Mm -hmm. He's not capable of doing that. 
which brings in the themes of um, indulging in his winter passion destroys everything meaningful. In other words, trying to be validated by this new form of entertainment is ultimately depriving him of everything he's worked for his entire life. Mm -hmm. This marriage he's had, like, that's why I do think his wife represents that kind of, this is what the moral good is. And he's, uh, he's cheapened that he's Mm -hmm. betrayed it Mm -hmm. and it's, it's destroying her because he's just decided to indulge on this desire to have a legacy in a world that doesn't want to give him that legacy. Um, and again, this, this gets into that allegory. Mm-hmm. And then of course you have Diana who is by far the most interesting, compelling force. Cause she is a force of nature. Um, and she, she wants to use Howard to make UBS number one. Her unconscious drive is she wants to prove that she is equal to max. Mm-hmm. This is a huge part of what she's playing is she's like, I am, I am, she comes, she comes from, uh, she was given this lower division, um, to kind of prove that she could run this. Like when, when she came on, she talks about, was it two years before? And, um, you know, that, that UBS was a complete joke. All their programming, programming was a joke. And she's like, my objective is to get the top six slots. And once we have that three quarters in a row, UBS is number one. And so she's given the news division, she's given Max's position or to, to um, co-produce with him. And, um, and what she's doing is she's showing, you know, a lot of this has like undertones of kind of edible complex type of conflict mm-hmm. where she's trying to um, seduce a kind of father figure, which is why that the introduction of the seduction is I looked up to you so much like a mentor, like a father figure. Mm-hmm. And then she seduces him. And she says, uh, so her, table. she says this in a table that she basically, she doesn't use the phrase daddy issues. Cause that's a bit, uh, a bit low, lo, low brow, but she uses another expression that, that, that is basically synonymous, you know, like there's, yeah. I can't remember exactly what the phrase she uses is, but she says that she has a parental trauma of some description, which has led to why she's going after her, not the much older man. Yeah. So her Achilles heel is her definition of success is tethered to Max's approval. And that's, you know, Achilles heel is always the, um, the growth that the territory that character needs to learn from or is going to learn from. Now, the interesting thing is I don't, you know, the moral imperative that she engages, uh, is to make UBS number one, she must kill her sentimentality. Now this is, this gets into this idea of like, people talk about, uh, character arcs is like a character arc is when a person becomes better. They change their value system to become a better person. That is not a character arc. I mean, that is a kind of character arc, but a character arc is simply the transformation of sacred values in that character, their sacred worldview. Mm-hmm. And the sacred also provokes the, the profane or invokes the profane. So for her, she has, in order to be, to achieve this objective of making number one, she must kill her sentimentality, which is at the core of cynicism of this kind of cynicism, mm-hmm. uh, which offers the theme mass media, which is Diana will use any ideology to secure its dominance, mm-hmm. whether that ideology is religion, whether it's politics, whether it's uh, martyrdom, all of those ideologies it doesn't matter. And it doesn't care what your ideology is. You can spout 
Marx, like mutilated Marxism as much as you want, as long as you get people watching. I care about the audience. I don't care what the audience wants. I just want them watching. It's interesting um, that that's, that's the way you've chosen to phrase the Diana theme, because I would say that there's a very similar, there's a very, almost an inverse sort of relationship with, with the audience be like the, the, so the audience are very much an, an integral part of the story as well when we're watching people at home and their reaction them you know the ratings are the audience the ratings are yeah. the audience because it's the audience reaction to what's happening and then you could consider a theme i would consider a theme of of this movie where the audience is concerned to be so you said you said the media will use any ideology to secure dominance correct is that mm -hmm. the way you phrased it the audience will abandon any ideology to achieve security. Yep. Security. Just so they, so that they can be secure. I would say security in terms of their mm. financial situation. They don't want, they, they, people want things to stay the same. Generally speaking, they don't want to rock the boat. Once Howard starts saying things to them that would, that asks from, too much from them they abandon the ideology they they're like they walk away and it's in an effort to the same as what most of the characters do what most of the characters are doing throughout the film is they're trying to hold on to a sense of security they're all they all want to hold on to something that makes them feel secure howard feels yeah. secure by having his show max feels secure by having the reaction, the response from a younger woman who makes him feel further from death, you mm -hmm. know, um, the security, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Hackett feels secure when he feels like he is the, what he calls himself the golden boy. One minute I was the golden boy, the, the air, the air apparent. Mm -hmm. his security was in that as they're as they were getting more and more successful he was going to replace ned Beatty's character ruddy ruddy no mm -hmm. the other guy i can't it's not ruddy is it um anyway ruddy Hackett? yeah ruddy ned Beatty's character yeah so so oh, arthur jensen arthur, arthur jensen, jensen was the, arthur jensen ned Beatty's. So but, yeah ned ruddy was the was hackett's competition yeah yeah so he so hackett felt secure in the knowledge that he was going to be the heir to the throne and I think for the vast majority of the of the of the characters, including the audience, they were all grasping at what meant, what made them feel secure. The audience abandons the ideology that's being put put forward from Howard. The instant it becomes a threat to their security. So I would I would argue that this isn't necessarily. It's an interesting observation. I think what the core of network is is largely tapping into this idea of anger, the science, the neuroscience of anger and being mad and how ultimately this isn't about, you know, it's not about the audiences looking for security because mm -hmm. everybody's taking really huge risks. Every, this is all about characters taking huge risks and the stakes keep getting higher and higher and higher. Um, and what I think is interesting is this idea of this, this taps into what is the role of anger in a culture? Because mm -hmm. she says, you know, our statistics tell us that Americans want somebody who's going to articulate their rage. Mm -hmm. 
there, this is, there's a depression, there's a war, there's, um, everybody's in difficult financial circumstances. Our culture's changing out from under us and everybody feels, um, demoralized, disenfranchised, and no one is talking about it. They're all acting like the news is just normal, that this is just a healthy way of going about it. It's madness. And then someone comes along and says, isn't that awful? Let's talk about how horrible everything is. And immediately people light up. And there's this, this interesting thing. They, they want to they feel like, they feel secure in the knowledge that other people are, someone else is expressing how they're feeling. But the instant that they need to do anything about it, then they, 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 they abandon it. This movie is talking about the psychology of anger and how corporations are using anger to commandeer people's sacred values. That mm-hmm. I think is what the core of network is all about. And it becomes the model of what we have as current culture, not even just Western culture. World culture is largely dominated by a commiseration of anger. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to kind of look at like what the, the, the structure of that is. Like, so in neuroscience, when you feel angry, um, your, your brain releases these neurotoxins, epinephrine and neuroepinephrine. And it creates this kind of like sudden jolts, this, this it's, it's fight or flight and it prepares you for a confrontation. Mm-hmm. And the thing of it is, is that feeling it's, it's unhealthy for you to have it very often, but it makes you feel awake, alive and present. And it's addictive. And what, what happens is when, when those hormones are released into your brain, you, uh, you, it suddenly triggers your sacred values. And there's that old saying that says, if you want to know someone's religion, what they really believe and hold sacred, find out what makes them angry. And when you find out what, what pisses them off, you've identified the profane and the profane is a direct contradiction or a threat to what is sacred to them. Now, a lot of people say like, you know, what is sacred to me is, you know, freedom, but they're not necessarily very passionate about all the different means and disciplines in order to respect other people's freedoms. What they're, what is really offensive to them is for example, I don't know, taxation or being overpaid or someone cutting them off on the freeway. That's what gets them angry. Cause it's like, this is my territory. And what has happened is that, um, is that the corporations have turned this into a kind of model for marketing. Mm-hmm. And that model is the form of commiseration. Is that mad? Yeah. Well, why don't we be mad together? Now, what's, what's the most brilliant thing about network is that it predicted what became the model of all media discourse Mm -hmm. because it's a way of short circuiting the brain. So you no longer have to think rationally through things. You no longer have to challenge or uh, engage ideas. Instead, what you're doing is if you can trigger that anger response, um, then what happens is your brain shuts down, you adopt slogans and you're able to uh, disengage any rational thought and all you have is these little neuroepinephrine hits. Mm-hmm. And then you get to a point where you begin to seek out those epinephrine hits. Mm-hmm. Some of the books that I, I strongly recommend people look into is um, Hate Inc. by um, Matt Taibbi. And then also The Outrage Industry. 
by Sarah Soberai and uh, Jeffrey Berry. What they track is this evolution of media, which, you know, started with when news suddenly shifted to this 24 hour cycle. And they went from being like, okay, our responsibility is to be the fourth estate to present the truth, which is what Max represents. To all of a sudden, you know, Roger Ailes took over Fox News and they started realizing like what we need is people tuning in constantly. We need them to be afraid to miss the, t- the, the TV show or to, afraid to miss the news. But the people already want to watch the show. That isn't good enough. They have got to be so scared to miss it. So terrified. And then you get characters like um, uh, Rush Limbaugh, who's one of the early radio shows. And his whole model was to provoke people into anger and to commiserate with them. Now I'm saying specifically commiseration is where you use the empathetic trigger in order to provoke people's to get angry, to feel cheated, to feel like a victim, to feel like the world is against you. Is that mad? Yeah. Well, why don't we be mad together? Now, the interesting thing with marketing is commiseration is the lowest form of social bonding. Like um, say you're in a grocery store, for example, and someone comes, uh, someone comes up to you and says like, man, these lines are really long, you know, total stranger. And you're like, yeah, these lines are pretty long unconsciously you've just bonded with them and you're like, okay, this person gets me. I feel like we're both in this together. What's that? You're saying it's not a particularly strong bond. It's the least. No. In fact, it's a cynical bond. Usually if somebody comes over and says, if they commiserate with you, they want something from you. And what they're doing is training you. Commiseration is it's easy. It's an easy bond. You can go up to anybody and commiserate over some, something that's like, isn't, isn't this shit? Yeah, it's total shit. Isn't this horrible? It's much more difficult to get someone to share appreciation. If you can inspire someone to share appreciation, you've actually formed the basis of a a substantial relationship. Mm. Instead, what we've, what we have is a media that is triggering and training an ideology of indignation. And what we have is all of us are addicted to indignation and indignation is simply this, the sense of feeling offended or feeling taken advantage of. And commiseration is the mode for that. Mm. Okay. It, doesn't, it doesn't contradict. It doesn't challenge you. It reinforces the feelings you already have. So it commiserates with you. It gets on your side and says, isn't this awful? Mm-hmm. And all social media has turned into nothing but commiseration. Now, I know that's a very blanket term. There's plenty of things that aren't. aren't. In fact, my attempt with this podcast is to turn yeah, or, or to discuss that. criticism in a way that is not commiseration. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's I, I, I want to talk about some. Yeah, you said at the top of the of the podcast that you don't want to talk about the movies that you don't like. You want to talk about the movies that you do like because it's a shared appreciation, not a shared Exactly. I think it's, it's far too easy to just commiserate. In fact, it's part of the reason why probably I'm never going to have like millions of followers is because I don't want to commiserate. I distrust commiseration and everybody should be mistrusting. I think skepticism is best targeted at people who try and commiserate with you. Because those are the people who want to take advantage of you. They are using you for their own means. Mm-hmm. 
that is the relationship between Diana and Howard Beale. She wanted to use his commiseration to get yeah. the audience. And that, that addiction to indignation is programming us. It's training us as a culture to adopt a sacred value that the only mode of discourse is pure commiseration and pure indignation, which is why all discussions now are simply attacks. Yeah. They're not a genuine good faith effort in, in discussing the issues uh, or in trying to understand somebody else's position. I believe the highest form of discourse is where people can listen to each other and genuinely engage each other yeah. and genuinely experiment with other ideas. Skepticism, too many people think skepticism is just the rejection of an idea. When skepticism in truth is the ability to entertain ideas without coming to some resolution of whether it's true or false. You can simply entertain it without incorporating it into your value system. But what we have is a culture that says you must have an opinion about this now. You have to decide what is true, what is false, so that I know where you stand and then I can operate on whether you're on my side or not. Are we going to commiserate or are we going to fight? Are we going to draw a boundary or not? And that's why slogans exist, because then as soon as you, as soon as they're bite-sized pieces that as soon as you expose that somebody has, they, they have an empty space in that particular area because they haven't explored the idea, you have something to give them and go, here, take this. This is the thing you want in there. And so that a slogan immediately goes straight into that position. And so, oh yeah, okay, I've adopted this now. And, yeah. and not realizing that that's what you've done. And, and there are actually videos online of, of people who have, who have gone up to people who are holding placards that have a slogan or whatever. And they go, mm -hmm. okay, can you tell me what this word means? Because maybe it's a particularly nuanced idea in the, in, in the slogan. And they go, uh, I don't know. Actually, I kind of just, I, I got this from someone who gave it to me over there. And I'm just kind of, <laughs> and it's like, you don't even yeah. know what the slogan means. You don't know what you're actually saying. So like this, yeah. there is so much of that where like. But at the same time, I mean, everything. you know, like just because you can't articulate the best defense against your ideology, like that's the other thing. Everybody suddenly feels like they have to be the spokesperson for whatever. Like, yes, it's true. You want to have some sort of coherent worldview, but we're all fucking figuring this out. We all are trying to understand what the, the, the dynamics are. Mm -hmm. And like immediately everyone has to have an opinion on this country warring with this country. And are yeah, these yeah. people oppressors? Are these people victims and stuff? When the truth of it is, is like all, everything you know about them has been arbitrated by some media with a bias, some media with an intention that is trying to exploit your sacred values, which is what this really comes down to is we, you know, as human beings, we kind of exist in, I, I call them kind of the three modes of group dynamics. That, that's community, movement, and tribes. And a community is a group of people with a common interest. It's voluntary, it's non-hierarchical, and it's, it's, um, everybody participates because they want to be there, not because they're being compelled in any way. They're only compelled by interest. And then as soon as that group of people tries to accomplish a goal, it shifts to movement. movement. And that movement is where they're trying to like, this is how we're going to get this done. And that's a very slippery slope because a movement very quickly, Tribes as have soon as they engage the sacred values of commiseration and anger, they identify an enemy and mm -hmm. that's when it becomes a tribe. Yeah. A tribe is a group of people with a common enemy. Yeah. And that yeah. tribe is, it, it comes from what is a basic biological imperatives of, you know, we, from, we, you know, we've been human for 200,000 years. 
And we've developed these kind of group dynamics. And most of our humanity, we all existed in kind of groups of 25 to 50 people, which is why we developed these kind of basic uh, biological functions. And our biological imperatives are most of the time we existed in peace with about 50 people around us our entire life and never needed to go into hierarchical relationships. It was largely dynamic, voluntary relationships where we all want to find food together. We all want to stay warm together. We all want shelter and care for each other. And then of course, you know, 12,000 years ago, we get the um, agricultural revolution and suddenly ownership plays, starts to play a role into identity. And then we have overnight slavery. Everybody is all about dominance and oppression and victims. But, Are you against, but, you're against hierarchical relationships? Like, uh, it, it, so it comes down to the concept of hierarchy. It's a great, that is a great question. <laughs> um, so, the, you know, a lot of people's, you know, Jordan Peterson, for example, he makes the claim that um, hierarchy is an, a natural part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. I disagree. I think what he is doing is conflating hierarchy with status. Hierarchy, especially when it comes to tribalism, is about submission to an authoritative or a distribution of authoritative disposition. Like so, you uh, you one person on a film set. What's that? Should you submit to somebody on a film set? Let me make my point and then we can answer that question. So, <laughs> okay. so the hierarchy is the distribution of will of one person to a group, right? It's yeah. the, the rule of the sacred. That sacred is that one specific opinion that one specific disposition distributed to a group right um so in other words if someone is above you in the hierarchy you have to obey them that's the nature of a tribe in a community status is different than a hierarchy just because someone has higher status than you does not immediately mean you have to obey them or submit to them and that's that it comes down to two kinds of authority like with Uh, so there's two kinds of authority there. There's the authority of compulsion and there's the authority of, um, uh, of advantage or, or wisdom. Mm -hmm. So for example, if someone, you know, we're hunter gatherers and there's hunters out there and there's one guy who's really good at using the bow. If you want to learn to use the bow, well, you're going to follow and learn and, uh, voluntarily interact with that person so that you can learn from them. Mm -hmm. That person has authority over what makes a good hunter, mm -hmm. right? Um, and th But then there's the other th authority, which is the authority of the tribe, which says, if you don't do what I tell you, you will be either exiled or killed. And those are worlds apart, but they're two, they're both authorities, but they're two kinds of authorities. In the community, the authority is voluntary. It simply says, if you want this from me, let's exchange. The hierarchy doesn't allow for an exchange. It is submission and obedience. So I, I do draw a very distinct uh, line between what is a hierarchy and what is a status. So, you know, people in a hierarchy in a tribe, yes, the people who are in, are in control, the elites, they do have high status, but with that status comes compulsion. In a community where it's voluntary, you can have people of different status, but the compulsion is not there, since, hence it's voluntary. Now, what most media and marketing is interested in is people in a community are very difficult to predict their behavior. Mm -hmm. 
in a tribe, it's easy. And the way you get people to be in a tribe is by provoking their anger, tapping into their sacred values and getting them to identify an enemy an other. And it's, it's through tribalism, which is why marketing is all about commiseration, provoking anger and getting people to engage and submit to a hierarchy. And I, I think ultimately uncertain circumstances that was a healthy evolution as a healthy adaptation for humanity to develop tribalism because it's how we survived, you know, facing hunger, facing starvation, facing enemies, facing rival tribes. That's probably why we developed the brains that we did was because of those hierarchical things. But in a small group, small groups are highly dynamic. Uh, that, that, uh, there's two things that I would speak to where, where that is concerned. Or where the, one is where that specific, it, it specifically is concerned. And then secondly, where that relates to uh, the actual text, which is the, which is the network. Um, so where, like, as far as the, the, I don't, I don't personally believe that Jordan Peterson would actually disagree with you in what you're saying, where, where the, where the definitions are concerned. I think when he talks about hierarchies, like he would talk about, about dominance hierarchies using different metrics also. So he would talk about competence hierarchies and then he would talk about status hierarchy. He would reference those things as, as, as individual, but then obviously there is a degree to which submission is necessary within a hierarchy. And that's why, like I was, I was saying to you, like, I get that you're saying in a community, sometimes you would, people would submit voluntarily to uh, following someone and learning from them as a result of knowing that that was in their best interest because this person has the highest competency in that particular skill set. However, mm -hmm. you will, what, what about when you find yourself in situations where there are, there are, um, disruptors in the group. So let's say we're all going to train with a ju Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, you know, double yeah. black, double down, whatever it, it, it is in that, in that discipline. And then you have one person coming in and being really disruptive and being an absolute pain, uh, hurting people, uh, not following the instructions, stuff like that. Would hierarchy not indicate, like would that, would that, would that situation not require that the person tutoring has the authority to say you get out of this classroom now i don't want you anywhere near me and then they have to submit to that and if they don't then you know that things can escalate um i think and and, and I, I brought up the subject of on a film set you know like i, I we could say that i i love to consider like my film team i've always i always refer to them as my family i get a little bit too too sentimental probably when it comes to my to my my my, my groups but I, I i that's just the way i feel about them and uh, but but even within that environment, the one thing I'm slightly uncomfortable with is that in that dynamic, I am the top of the food chain. And that makes me a little uncomfortable because I don't want to get into disputes with people, but sometimes it may be necessary. If someone mm -hmm. is causing, you know, film sets have to run like clockwork. And if someone is, is being chatty at points where it's inappropriate or, you know, creating a disruption, I believe it is my responsibility and authority to tell someone, you better do this now or you're off this set. And so that would necessitate that would that would that definitely implies that there is a, a a necessity for someone to obey to be actually obedient to someone who is above them in the in that in the pecking order. Do you know what I mean? So would that do you not, would you not agree that there are times and places even within communities where a hierarchy of authority is necessary? Okay, so again, there because there are two types of authorities. 
there's the authority through compulsion. There's authority through um, uh, exchange, through uh, mm-hmm. a, a fair exchange. So uh, it, it all comes down to what the objective is. So there's a community, which is a group of people with common interests, right? As soon as that group of people tries to achieve a goal together, they become a movement. And mm-hmm. a set would be a movement. A movement okay. requires leadership. It requires distribution of authority. But it is not a movement that is organized around an enemy. Yeah, yeah. No, the objective right. of a film set is not is not waging war against an enemy. Now, you could metaphorize the enemy of saying, you know, our, our, object, our enemy is bad art. Okay. But that's not actually the function. The function is to create something creative together, which comes down to um, voluntary creative relationships. Like, you know, as an artist, the best way to get the best out of people is to engage them on their level Mm -hmm. and inspire them of their own volition to contribute. Mm -hmm. And that is not a hierarchical relationship. That is, and just because you get the final word, that is an agreement that you guys are reached together. And that's, that's a healthy set where you're respecting the, the independence and the agency of each person's contribution. That's, that's a movement. And movements are healthy. As soon as it shifts to an enemy, which is an enemy is simply the identification of something as a threat. As soon as you identify the threat, then um, you, it, it now becomes a question of survival in a movement. It's not always about survival. It's not, it's, that's why it's not based on an enemy. You're not trying to survive on a film set. You're trying to create art together through the collaboration with other people. And the, the uh, distribution of authority, you can call it a hierarchy, but the hierarchy is not the reason why I don't, I wouldn't say it's purely a hierarchy is because it doesn't invoke the sacred value mm-hmm. and sacred. Remember sacred always goes back to that moral value, which has to do with survival. Are you going to live or are you going to die on a film set on a good film set, a healthy film set? The stakes are not life or death. The stakes are, are we going to create something in harmony or are we going to uh, sabotage that? But if the creation of something is threatened, that could also threaten your career. It could threaten your your uh, your economic situation because maybe you don't you're not perceived as sure. Which is where we get into politics, and why this is why a, a bit for a, this is a big reason why culturally we've arrived where we have is because the negotiation of politics is turning everything tribal. And it is largely because most people's mode of discourse is a form of commiseration or opposition. Mm. When the truth of it is, is that's usually the worst form of diplomacy. The worst way to get what you want out of a situation is to draw a boundary between you and the other person and to turn your, um, your dialogue into a competition or into a form of antagonism. Sure. I, 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 I get a strong sense from people that, we're living in an age where that where we have a less much less sense of, of community now than we ever have and it's probably due to directly to things like that where you where we're our, we've been uh we've had our we've been reprogrammed to consider these tribal situations and and as you say then then there's a less there's a less um 
intense bond between individuals because we're all complaining about things instead of uh, of rallying around what we're in what we're passionate yeah, about. Yeah, commi- exactly. Commiseration is literally the shallowest form Shallow of social bond. bonding. And is literally the basis that most people are building their friendships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you and I both hate that thing. Therefore, we're like each other and therefore we identify with each other because we both hate that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is a very shallow way of building group relationships. Yeah, A more powerful way of building group relationships is inspiration and awe and shared desire to achieve something that elevates you. Yeah. And that's extremely difficult and requires more work, more labor, and, you know, I'm not going around, I'm not claiming that I have the answer to the solution to all that. But what I do know is that commiseration is the model that most media is is using. Like, you know, I, I see people who are trying to build YouTube channels, for example, and their mode of building YouTube channels is largely through identifying an enemy and harping on that enemy through sure. commiseration. Yeah. Yeah, I get and that. Commiseration, I think, is a toxic weapon mm-hmm. that people are using to to exploit each other. Yeah, and we're being programmed so that we we take offense at everything. And I'm saying we because we all do this. This idea that there's like a I don't believe in a political spectrum. This idea of left or right or moderate or anything like that that is a myth that we use to try and create artificial boundaries. Us versus them. It, yeah, exactly. It creates the in group and the out group. Yeah. Yep. And it's like, okay, I am moderate, left, middle, uh, <laughs> conservative, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When the truth of it is, is so you're saying that your your value system is the best way to achieve every single, mm-hmm. pro- solve every single problem. When the truth of it is, is, you know, we, we need the full, uh, we need everybody's ideas on how to figure out how to solve the problem and negotiate that. Yeah. Loyalty to a tribe is usually the best way to sabotage any problem solving. Yeah, and you're that speaking my language on that. Completely, absolutely, completely speaking. I, I will, I will always maintain that no matter what, no matter what, if someone keeps calling me a, a right wing or left wing based on views that I've espoused, that I, like I refuse to to be like that. I, yeah. I, I'm not an ideologue. I don't, I'm, I, I don't, don't paint everything with the one brush. There's nuances to everything. I take each. You know, a situation as it comes. But I also, I also relate to what you're saying as a sports fan, because obviously, sports is the easiest thing to turn into a tribal situation. Yeah, but I exactly. can tell you, just based on what, what we've what we've just discussed in terms of relationships and bonds, I have a stronger relationship with the Tottenham Hotspur uh, soccer team uh, fans, where we share our desires for the success of our team going forward what does that look like what players do we need to get in how do how is the structure of the like we get down to the nitty-gritty we talk about the economics mm-hmm. we talk about like, like how is as the as the the, the backroom staff are they you know the board of the of directors are they doing things the right way in order for us to achieve success i have the least connection with the people who only talk about the teams that we hate. You know, we have rival yeah. teams, of course, yeah. Arsenal, Chelsea, West Ham. We don't like these teams. But if we just spend all day only talking about the teams that we hate or, you know, the uh, discussing how much we dislike the opposition, mm-hmm. those are not the people that I want to continue to communicate with. They're not the ones I want to talk to the next day. They're not the ones whose shows I want to go on when I'm doing podcasts with them. Do you know what I mean? So I, I can totally relate to that as well in terms of how that how like sports, sports becomes tribal. It's like like that like it's 100% and and to tie this back into network I think what this movie did was Paddy Chayefsky 
was seeing this, this pattern, like one of the things that um, the rebuttal against network when it was released was a lot of people who worked in television were saying, well, that's not true. None of this is true. It's all caricature. It's all mm -hmm. exaggerated. And then Lumet came back and said, well, actually everything in this movie has actually happened in the room and on television, except that we've killed someone for the purposes of entertainment. Mm-hmm which then it gets back into the 24 hour news cycle. And especially if you watch, uh, or if you read, uh, hate Inc, it's a, it's a fantastic kind of, uh, look at like the way television networks and social media has embraced demagoguery mm -hmm. and spectacle as a way of getting people to shut down their rational thought and to at the core of it. This is what I liked about what Taibi said was the, the, the root of getting people to engage is that everybody's understanding this idea that everybody has a kind of inferiority complex. Mm -hmm. And the modern condition is that everybody, nobody knows where they stand in uh, relationships of status, not hierarchy, but status. They don't know who is more important than them. And most people are, feel disconnected and disenfranchised from any kind of social relationship, which is why communities play such an important role because you, you see how you contribute to a group of people. Mm -hmm. And with the collapse of, of the, of the social voluntary communities, you have a lot of inferiority complexes, which means you're constantly looking for people to articulate your, your uh, sense of anxiety and that anxiety manifests itself as rage. And mm -hmm. It, it's literally fertile ground for commiseration. Everybody wants to feel angry because it helps them feel above or superior, which is why most news stories that, uh, that go viral are stories about people being stupid or people looking silly or foolish. And the idea is so the observer engages it. So they feel little superior. They feel like they're better than better than the, the person who's the object of the, of ridicule. The and difficulty my, comes when then when you have situations where we should have a united front against particular uh, situations that are happening. Like there, like the, let's be fair. Go ahead. There, there will be circumstances sometimes where people who are in situations of power abuse that power, and when that mm -hmm. happens, we sh there should be a collective yep. rage, and and there should be a a a tribe, I guess, formed in order to defeat that enemy, not necessarily with violence, but to take down the oppressor, right? Mm -hmm. So when does it become okay to to feed into the actual, the, we are angry, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take, take it anymore. anymore. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so... And let me say, well, two things I want to say. First of all, when, you know, invoking Jordan Peterson, I know that's a bit of a third rail thing. I don't know uh, Jordan Peterson at all. I'm, I'm kind of peripherally familiar with some of his claims about hierarchy um, and some concepts of truth that we can get to in another time. Um, but um, so I won't claim to be any kind of authority or, or um, either a follower nor a condemner of i just you know he's 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 somebody who is engaging subjects that i care deeply about mm -hmm. um but uh the second thing is tribalism in my paradigm 
tribalism isn't a good or a bad thing. It is simply a moral imperative or it's, it's simply a function of a biological imperative. Most of the time, uh, if you read Jonathan Haidt, he talks about how humans are basically psychologically 90% chimp and 10% bee, which means most of the time we're only self-interested, but in this, in the circumstances where we need to group together, we're very good at falling in line and achieving, working together to achieve a larger goal. So tribalism is the presentation of a threat. And when a group of people feels threatened, they do need to respond proportionately. And tribalism is a healthy response to a real threat. The problem is that that is being cynically exploited by media and marketing in order to get people to engage they are their sacred values are being triggered through commiseration and they're f- falsely being presented with a blown out of proportion threat or they're being presented with something that may be a real threat but the response is so disproportionate that it is presented as the only solution to the problem because mm-hmm. a tribe is a giant hammer it sees everything as a nail and and that's where nuance completely goes out the window. We, we, when we, when we become tribal, we are shutting down our reasonable thinking and the solutions simply become opposition, oppression, victim narratives. Do you think, think that's why Max and Diana couldn't have a relationship in the movie because they were, they were always, they represent different tribes and therefore they were always actually in spite of their lusts. They were always in, in, in opposition to one another because she represents. I, I don't think that they represent tribalism. I think Max uh, represents uh, what I would say is is uh, he represents the initial idea of what news was intended to be, which was yeah. uh, the fourth estate informing people of the information they need in order to participate in uh, democracy in an educated way. And, and there's some vested where he's trying to hold on to that. And by him engaging Diana, he's compromising mm-hmm. that thing. He's still trying to be relevant. It's it. So he represents um, the news or uh, journalism, and she represents sensationalism or what the new media is: television. Mm-hmm. Now, television is more interested in holding an audience than they are in informing that audience. They don't give a yeah, shit yeah, if the yeah, audience yeah. is informed. Sure. And his this engagement is. Howard connecting with Diana is a metaphor for Max compromising his integrity as a source of, of information as, you know, objective facts, uh, the the tradition of an objective news or journalism. Okay. And Um, one of the ways in which she goes about doing that, getting him to compromise when she first goes into him and she's like, I don't want to control your show, which she clearly did, but I don't want to control your show, but I want to guide it. And I want to, I I want to elevate it. One of the things that she, one of the tactics she uses is she tells him that the, that new media and old media are, are not really any different because he, he, uh, she she talk, talks about all the different things that his uh, he was reporting on over the last 24 hours or whatever. And she was like, puppies, kittens, uh, sex, gambling, blah, whatever, all these different, yeah. you know, these different things that he was reporting on. And she was like, you're no different than me. Do you think that she was right in what she was saying? Is that an, a, a truth that she used to try and coerce him? Or do you think that that was... I don't think it matters. I don't think anything anybody character said in this movie 
represents truth or wisdom. It only represents what they want to get out of that moment, which is the true cynical interpretation. Each person is saying whatever they need to say to get what they want. Mm-hmm. Max, he speaks truth, but he's basically going and saying to his wife, yeah, I'm in love with another person. It's painful truth, so it's closer to the truth, but it's still this horrible commiseration. Howard Beale, like the idea of him as a prophet, you know, as somebody who's there to say the truth, like, you know, classically the ancient archetype of a prophet is somebody who speaks the truth to power at the expense of their own interest or well-being. They're there to say the truth, even if it costs them their life. And Howard Beale represents a kind of parody of that, a satire of that, where he pretends to take on that, uh, that insight, or he, he pretends to take on that position of pretending to speak truth to power. But when he actually comes face to face with power, he absorbs their message and becomes the voice piece for it, mm-hmm. which is the total hypocrisy of it. So, you know, whether it's true or not, maybe all I know is that Diana thought she could get what she wanted in that scene by saying that. Yeah. But what, yeah, I am interested in whether or not it, it is, it's true though. Like, is the, is, is it, are they, as much as we know, Diana's wave of media has, um, it's more sinister to a large degree. It, is she pointing out things about the previous media institution that were were that led to what we ended up getting? Yeah. Because so yeah, were- I yeah, I mean, you could argue yes if you look back at like you know Hearst and uh, the the kind of oligarchical uh, dominance of uh, traditional media. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Like, I think the difference that she's articulating with that or that Chayefsky is articulating with that is that, um, you know, you're, yes, I'm propaganda, but I'm more entertaining propaganda. It's always been mm-hmm. about entertainment or it's always been about using people to get what they want. Now, classical journalism really is about holding power responsible. Mm-hmm. And and telling the truth, but now it's no longer about holding power responsible. It is largely about capitulation, or or persuading people to um, do the bidding of the elite. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, which is why I go back to you know, uh, you know, we the new religion is is not the world religion, and I mean this for every kind of other ideology or religion or political position you have, the new religion really is the religion of indignation, the religion of the only power I have is the right to be offended and to be angry. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's responding, they're developing their sacred values just off of this kind of thought stopping um, slogans and that sloganization that, that keeps people from like uh, engaging the actual issues like problem solving you know when you have two countries in conflict war is failure to solve the problem as soon as you have to hurt somebody to convey your ideology you failed your ideology is a failure you're just resorting to force and yeah. um but the, 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 that's not the problem that, that's not even the problem that the film articul- articulates though because they go one step further and they say so you have you have the Ned Beatty character saying to um, to Howard that the goal 
in this global corporation and the businesses to one day end all that, end war, end suffering, end absolutely every kind of, of unpleasantness right down mm -hmm. to boredom. It will all be gone by the time they achieve their ultimate goal. And then so Howard buys into it, but then he goes out into the and has his last conversation where he tells the world, look, we're just going to have to accept that yeah. this is the way things are going to go. And ultimately what that will do, the biggest detriment will be that we will be all robbed of our individualism. Individuality will disappear because then we'll all be as replaceable as cogs in a machine. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's the ultimate uh, hell of hell of the, of the idea of, of network is that mm -hmm. one day if, if the corporations are allowed to achieve what they claim to achieve in terms of what they believe, like every antagonist believes he's the protagonist of his story. So yeah. the, the, the global business believes that we're going to end up in a situation where everything is so controlled, human beings are so mind controlled that we can get rid of all pain and suffering and any kind of unpleasantness, but it will yeah. rob us all of our, our individuality. That's the end game and it's a good end game. Because at least when we we're, we're all zombified and we're all just cogs in the machine, there'll be no, nothing bad anymore. But we won't we won't we won't be individuals. We'll all just be the blob. Yeah, that's yeah. the real fear of it. Yeah, and, and again, I think that that whole um, monologue is Chayefsky spouting off about what um, Arthur Jensen wants to convey. You know, mm -hmm. the whole thing is persuasion. It's it's a flex of authority. It's ethos. He's position. He's like you're trying to position yourself as being in control of your audience. Mm -hmm. You haven't even begun to see what real power is. Yeah, and I'm yeah, going yeah, to demonstrate yeah. it to you. Yeah. yeah. So like I all of his claims, he's only saying exactly what it is he needs to position himself back in control of of uh, Howard. And then Howard, that's his arc. He shifts and becomes. You know, I was railing against power. Now I realize. I am the most important voice because I am power. I'm speaking mm -hmm. for power. And mm -hmm. that's when he, you know, that's why, you know, he, he pretends to be a kind of prophet figure when a real prophet figure. Um, and that's what's so brilliant about this movie, but a real prophet figure uh, speaks the truth to power that they don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't yeah. do that. He tells people what they want to hear. So they get angry and he mm -hmm. just captures an audience. It's, it's the most cynical, but, brilliant observation and then that became the model for news channels for political discourse and now for basic social interactions online it is largely commiseration or oppositional mm -hmm. boundaries you're you're an other or you're one of us mm -hmm. and i think what especially with this next year coming up in in america we you know it's an election year mm -hmm. we're going to see a lot of commiseration and a lot of provoking indignation so that you feel like, well, this is my only solution. Mm -hmm. And the truth of it is, is I, I think, you know, it, um, uh, so recently I've been doing like uh, news fasts where I'm just like, I'm disconnecting. I'm not engaging social media. I'm not watching news as much. And it is psychologically so much better. I spent some time, you know, where people were trying to reach out and I, I took my stuff offline and stuff. And a lot of that was a reset. I mean, my family was going through some difficult times too, but that reset was psychologically so much better. Mm -hmm. I was a happier person because most of politics is arguing about comments. Like the, the, these, you know, comments are going to pass by the earth and you can sit there and argue, is it going to hit us or not? And you can argue all you want, but you have no power over it. 
Mm-hmm. Politics is largely like the practice of deciding how other people should live, mm-hmm. which to me is the most absurd thing about it. It's like, you're going to live how you want, but you need politics to determine, to decide for other people. You're, you're using politics as a weapon against your neighbor rather yeah. than, you know, the, the classical way, which is, uh, connecting with them through substance and allowing them the freedom to make the decisions they want. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, it's also fun to just fantasize it. But the big takeaway for me for network, the, the big life lesson is when someone tries to commiserate with you, they want something from you. And right now we're in a position of constantly just getting angry, easily getting angry. And it feels, it, it satisfies that inferiority complex we're all feeling, that position of like, well, I must be a higher status than you because I'm angry at you. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't actually solve the problem. It creates instead a kind of addiction where we're constantly looking for people that we can commiserate with rather than having actual meaningful conversations. And that's what I think story does for us. Story mm-hmm. is about engaging substance through conflict, through character, and engaging these these values story is a vector for values but Mm -hmm. the idea is that it's it's about engaging characters that we care about and specifically for empathy that's another book i strongly recommend paul bloom's um against empathy is a fascinating discussion on how people will use empathy as a pretext for moral foundation but ultimately it's the worst mechanism you can use for um solving problems like empathy ends up becoming a mode of control for the person empathizing rather than a way for people to um, demonstrate compassion. And he draws a distinction between compassion and empathy. Compassion is a genuine concern for someone else's well-being. Empathy is simply where you feel the feelings of that person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but as storytellers, we want people to feel empathy so they can live in the world of that character. Yeah. Yeah. But, I've gotten yeah. so many book recommendations from this podcast alone, by the way. But I think we'll put a list. We'll put a list underneath the comments and stuff. Absolutely, that'd be a great idea. Um, yeah. I, I I also think that like it's 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 um the, what you just said there is obviously an important aspect of of us when we're when we're making the material. Like you said, you mentioned before, I said that uh, I mentioned in one of the last podcasts that it's important when we're um, writing stories to understand how and when to deliver information. It's an incredibly important aspect of story writing is when do I, like this information, I have to give information in every scene and what, what am I delivering at what point that makes the, the drama uh, work better and, uh, and engage the audience in, the, in, in a way that, it, that the, even the pacing is right. It, it, you know, everything, everything operates around the information delivering, but then you made the point and a very, very important point that the information must be wrapped in emotion. It can't just mm-hmm. be you're giving the audience information. It has to be, how do they feel when you deliver that information? How do you want the audience to feel about the subject you're tackling when you're, mm-hmm. when you're delivering that information? And that is incredibly important. And if we're, if all, if the, if, if in the news, all that we're being asked to feel is angry, then if we should be aware of that, we should start being aware of that. When you watch a movie, you're being asked yeah. to feel all sorts of things. Yeah. But then if you're, when you're watching the news, if you're just that being asked to feel angry, be suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. And by suspicious, I mean, engage your, your skeptical discipline, which is just entertain the idea, allow yourself to feel the feelings, go through the journey with them and Mm -hmm. walk away and think, 
what is it I feel? What does this actually teach me this lesson? Do I agree with this or am I just being provoked or does it make mm -hmm. me angry because I disagree with it so much? If it does make you almost always feeling angry is a great opportunity to reevaluate your value system. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that, you know, you're going to change your value system, but it does make you kind of consciously engage what is sacred to you. Because most of the time, what's really sacred to us is fully unconscious. It's fully at the instinctual level. It comes through, you know, years of repetition and engagement of conflict. Um, but that's ultimately the role that story plays. Anyway, I, I think this movie, like, is it's a it's a piece of genius. I think it's a masterpiece. There are one or two things that I still feel like, you know, that hook scene. I agree with you. I think yeah, yeah. jumping right into the production that would have had a nice pop. I still yeah. think the it was uh, Chayefsky and Lumet indulging in the conversation with Max and his wife, where he's he's telling her that he's in love with another woman. I would I would change that scene, but but you know these are masterful screenwriters and filmmakers and actors working on a very high level that mm -hmm. is emotionally compelling, and to this day. I think this film has more resonance about the human condition than ever before. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Strongly recommend go back and rewatch and rewatch and rewatch network. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, anything else you, you want to say about a network or, or your experience with it? Um, I, I, I may, I have a serious amount of notes. I've I'm not sure if we covered everything and we've already done. So this is the part that I'm sure is the longest podcast that we've done so, <laughs> so far. far. Yeah. Um, but I do think like this, you could tell the, 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 there are so many monologues in this movie and every mm -hmm. single line you, we could sit here and do another hour on like literally mm -hmm. every It's so juicy. Like just the, meddled with the primal forces of nature. Yeah. What does that mean? We could talk about that for an hour. You know what I mean? Like there's, yeah. there's so many, um, there's so many kind of deep ideas and you, I, I'm, I'm definitely, I definitely feel like I'm, I'm at a dis disadvantage for only having seen the film twice. You know what I mean? Cause like yeah. if you watch it again and again and again, I'm sure your brain is just meditating. I think on the first time I saw it, I might've been like 14 or 15 mm -hmm. and I was That's just very, very, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think I had a full appreciation. I think it was probably sometime in my twenties or thirties that I was like, yeah. uh, like really began to like, actually, no, I, I first came up with the concept of the profit margin when I was 19 years old. Oh, wow. And yeah. And this movie was a huge uh, inspiration for it. I this one, for sure. <laughs> Hal Ashby's being there and then also wag the dog. Okay. Uh, those, those three movies were powerful. Um, motivators or powerful inspirations on me developing the profit margin for what it is. Uh, I have to watch wag the dog again. I watched that when I was yeah. very young and I didn't enjoy it, but probably cause I, I think I was, I was too young for at the time. I wasn't mature enough to engage with that guy with, <laughs> with the yeah. film, but uh, yeah, I need to go back and watch it again. One thing I will, I will uh, just say before we wrap up though, it, you, you, you brought up the, the question of who is the God of this, of, of this world, right? Who, yeah. so like, the one that uh, well, Howard talks about at one point is when he says he feels like he's easing, he's uh, experiencing a connection with the transcendent. He references prana, that idea of who, like who the God is. And then he obviously that he said when he's standing in front of uh, Ned Beatty's character, he says, I think I've seen God. And he goes, maybe you have, 
do you have any further thoughts on what you perceive the God of the, who of is the, the God family? of this world? You yeah. know what? Actually, this is a great place to end it. I want you and the audience to write in the comments <laughs> who you think the God of this world of network is. I want to hear your thoughts. I do have a very specific idea, but I think it's far more interesting to have the audience answer it. Sure. Yeah. Drop the comments. <laughs> yeah. Cause this is definitely an ongoing conversation. I think we're going to cover over other movies that start to dip into this territory too. Sure. I actually think it would be cool as well, by the way, that like, it, it, that like if the audience members start writing in, leaving comments, you could even do an hour long, you know, uh, Q and A, where you're just answering the the audience's questions, and literally just we we could we could go, you know chat away about what the audience yeah. thought about this that and the other that we've said throughout. That's the, a great idea. Episode. Yeah, I like that idea. That's really cool. You literally like it's 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 just answering their questions, and what like, whatever yeah. they've got to say about the particular things that we brought up during these conversations. That's where and, yeah, and that'd so, be a lot less preparation. <laughs> exactly, and now yeah. I think you owe it to the audience as well to do it because you've said that you you have thoughts on who the god of of this world is. So you're going to have to listen to their thoughts and then give them yours. Okay, that's a great point. Let me say that right now. Okay, send in your questions for a Q and A, and Adam and I will go through them any disagreements you have, anything that you, of all the videos we've been releasing recently, I'll bring up all the questions and uh, me and Adam Cahill will go through it and, uh, and try and answer all of them or as many as we can within a couple hours. Yeah. So, cool. Brilliant. Nice. Awesome. Well, dude, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. I well, feel I like we it. dove deep into the deep end and then, swam all the way to the bottom and touched it and dove back up. So I'm feeling the bends a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I, it's, uh, I, I knew this one was going to be a meaty one, but as always very enlightening and uh, just encourages me to want to do more and more of these. So looking forward cool. to the next one as always. So remind everybody where to check out your stuff. Buy this. No, <laughs> you can check out. I want that uh, sweatshirt. I think that is so cool. I can't wait. <laughs> We're in the process of, of updating wildstackproductions.com, which is the website. And when we do that, we'll have a new manufacturer uh, producing these. So cool. I'll, whenever that's available, I'll announce it on the, on the next podcast that I'm on with Adam. Um, but you can check out Follow the Dead in the United States on Tubi TV. So if you've never used it before, it's tubi.tv. Um, and then it's also available on Amazon Prime, Apple TV. Um, so Follow the Dead is was my first feature film that I made out of college, Irish zombie comedy. Um, and uh, I'm in the process of making a sequel at the moment, which Adam is kindly helping me with in terms of structuring the story. Um, so that's kind of what I got going on at the moment. And um, I, I will be put, I, I'm, I'm building up all of my social media platforms. So I'm, it's yeah, at Wildstag Media on um on instagram facebook tiktok twitter x uh youtube and we'll be posting a lot of things on there that'd be really interesting for anybody interested in movies so like behind the scenes of the previous stuff bloopers outtakes all that kind of stuff um vlogs on what we're doing at the moment and um and uh a podcast that i want to do on irish movies which i hope adam will join mm -hmm. me on at some stage as well in the i'd future. love to so that'll be cool Awesome. Excellent. And uh, be sure to go to cinematicore.com where you can get the story by numbers book. Also, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review of story by numbers on Amazon, the more reviews kind of helps the algorithm. So more people can check out our stuff. And um, thanks so much. Thanks for this great conversation. This is one of my favorite all time movies and this strongly influenced me as a, as a filmmaker and as a writer. So uh, and the, go and watch the, the movies. 
Go ahead. The sto- the, do you want to talk the the story intensive? What's the story with that? Don't you, is it, that's that's fully, oh, by the time this comes out, it'll it'll already have been passed. I would have done it, but th- th- is yeah. there an opportunity for anyone to to check it out after the fact, or is it only whoever's? It's only the people who signed up get to watch. Yeah, I hope you signed up, folks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got such a huge reaction off of this first one. Like we, when we opened up registration, we filled up the class in half an hour. Wow. So, yeah, wow. I was I was surprised by that. Yeah, so I, I've been getting a lot of emails about opening it up. I, I've I've made it so a few more people can join, um, but I don't want to flood the the course too much. So I want to make sure that everybody has like a good kind of productive experience. And if we have too many people, then we'll see. But I've I've been hit with so many people asking for me to do it again. So it might be worth it for us to look at doing it again. Um, originally, it was just kind of a let's do this as an exercise and see if it's something that's viable. And uh, I believe a lot of people will get a lot out of it. Yeah. And it'll be fun to interact with, with all the people that, you know, participate in the, in the podcast as well. Um, nice. But, but yeah, the, the initial intention was just to do it once. And uh, the, the only people that get to see it are the people who participate. Okay. So, cool. well, look, if you didn't sign up folks, you just got to keep your ear to the ground and find out when the next one is, if there's going to be a second one. So make sure you don't yeah, miss the next one. Awesome. Thanks, man. Cool. Well, thanks so much. Go make some art. Go watch some movies and have a great week. You've got a story inside you, a screenplay no one has ever thought of, a novel you've been rolling around inside your coconut for years. Maybe you wrote a few pages and stalled out. Maybe you even wrote a whole draft but don't feel confident it's any good. Or maybe you've been writing draft after draft after draft and slamming into writer's blocks or dead ends or wandering into the weeds. Maybe you just have a few scenes centered around some dope high concept, but you don't know how to develop a character, much less construct a plot that would generate a character arc. Maybe all you have is some simmering spark of an idea. Just a simple desire to write a story. This book is for you. Story by Numbers is a step-by-step process. It gives you the tools to construct a plot that fleshes out your story with characters so real, so compelling, so multi-dimensional, you'll begin to wonder if you're possessed. Story by Numbers is composed of three parts. Part 1 gives you an overview of the four-act structure, 24 plot points, 8 sequences. Part 2 is a 35-question examination of your story that will guide you through developing and outlining your novel or screenplay into the four-act template. Part 3, well, that's just next-level dope shit. This isn't just another book on theory. Story by Numbers is a diagnostic toolkit for developing and fine-tuning your story. You'll also want to pick up the Story by Numbers workbook. For each story you're writing, you'll need a journal to organize your ideas. The Story by Numbers workbook is a companion notebook that walks you through the process as you outline your story and guide you through each phase of development. From constructing your protagonist's internal drive to plotting conflicts that expose character to composing scenes that drive compelling stories. By the time you've completed your story by number workbook, you'll be ready to finish your manuscript. Whenever you ask a writer what it takes to write a good story, they usually say there are no rules. If you want to know what they really think, ask them about a novel or movie they hate. Immediately, they'll unload a litany of do's and don'ts so specific, so precise, you'd think they're citing commandments. We all know following a formula is what turns stories into zombified, hacky imitations of better stories. You don't want a formula. You want a process. A method composed of practical principles that breathe life into your concept. You don't want some bullshit magical key. You just want to know what works and what doesn't. Does your story resonate? 
or not. Everyone knows there are no rules for writing a great story. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, here are the rules. Story by numbers. Write more, better, faster, doper.